This call is now being recorded. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mace, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where I talk music with some people who have made an impact within the music industry. And right now on the phone with me, I have Mr. Sean Rivera, member of the 90s R&B group As Yet. Sean, welcome to the podcast, my man. Man, it's great to be here, Jarrell. What's going on? Just in case you may have forgotten which one. I'm the guy that uh, everybody referred to as the high yellow one, the light-skinned one, the one who sings, I drank your wine and you taste mine. That guy. Anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the, the Crystal Williams type. Yeah, we know what that is, but I appreciate, I appreciate you coming out and uh, being on the podcast with me. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into it. Where did your love of singing come from? Well, unlike most of my friends, um, I didn't really get into the music until I was in my junior year of high school. I used to be afraid to get in front of people and read. I was a really good student, but I didn't like reading in front of the class, so I got scared. And I don't like being scared because where I come from, you know, I hear gunshots every day and madness going on in the street. And I'm like, I ain't scared of nothing. Why am I scared of being in front of people? So I came up with this idea. I said, you know what, I'm going to join gospel choir because I love the sound of the music. I'm just going to hide up there. You know, nobody will see me, but I get to be in front of people, and that will help me get over my fear. And about two weeks later, they asked me to sing a lead vocal. And a friend of mine uh, from LaSalle University, which is next door, heard me singing that lead and said, hey, you want to be in a group? And I was like, wow, I don't think I was all that good. But, you know, you think I'm good enough to be in a group? Man, I love to be a part of something, you know, that makes me feel as good as music makes me feel. So I wasn't one of those, like, child prodigies who just grew up singing in the church, but I did start singing with gospel choir in high school, and it was more about getting over my fear. So that's a lesson to anybody that on the other side of what you fear most is what you want. So, uh-huh. Now, yeah. growing up in – yeah, thank you. So now, growing up in Philly, tell me about the impact and the influence of Philly Soul, mainly Gamble and Huff, Sigma, Sigma Sounds, and Philly International. Wow. Well, starting with uh, Philly International, I mean, there's, there's a tre- treasure trove of music um, coming from not just the uh, most popular artists, let's say, from the Paddle of Bells to the Teddy Pendergrass. I mean, you know better than most, uh, Jarrell, how many uh, obscure artists I mean, like, I, I won't say obscure because in Philly, everybody knows everybody. So some artists that to you and me might be ordinary. Like, um, you, you know, uh, McFadden and Whitehead? Oh, yes. You know, yes, yes, yes. And, uh, them boys that, the, the son that had the, your love is the 187. And forget that was a G off Jason's lyric. Whitehead Brothers. Yep, the Whitehead Brothers. Well, they the son of, you know, the, they're, you know, they're, they're part of the Philly legacy that a lot of people don't appreciate, just as an example. But the influence that Philly had in general, it was at my era, and coming up in the 90s, but the early 90s, because the, the R&B vocal groups of the 90s got started in the late 80s, most of the ones that, were, that weren't put together. So at that time, everybody was hanging out in the street corners. Everybody was singing. Like before Boys and Men was famous, we knew them. Uh, Gamble and Huff, uh, they had just, uh, they were, this before, uh, they signed No Question. And one of the guys in No Question used to be, uh, in our group back in the day when we were As Yet Untitled. Uh, God rest in power to Mr. Damon Core. You know, Damon Core, uh, you know, he left our group and eventually signed to, uh, Philly International and they put out that group No Question. Uh, I'm sure you might know the song, that I'm Gonna Love You. That was the joint. Yeah. Yeah, man. But uh make a long story short, it was a sweet spot in music history where the thugs 
would be singing on the corner. It didn't matter. There was something to do, and, like, the people would be battling, battling, like, fist fighting over songs, and there were competitions, like, for everybody to hustle and try to win the prize money so we could eat, you know? Like, right. one of the dudes in our group was so the outfits, make the outfits for us, because, you know, it was like a style thing to do your own outfits and cut cut our own hair and then get on the stage, and we was trying to do all the acapella stuff. Like, it, there was still some camps, but you had camps that were influenced by either like the Jodeci's or the Boys to Men type groups, the Tech Sixes and the Commissions who gave birth to those groups. I'm co- going off on a tangent from Philly and Oh, no, but that's fine. That, uh, that Motown Philly thing was not an accident because Motown and Philadelphia both have a very similar um, background when it comes to musical legacies and in-house labels like how, you know, Philly International was, uh, you know, Philadelphia's answer to the Motown uh, sound coming out of Detroit. So we had mad love and respect for them, just how, like, Philly hip-hop is parallel to New York hip-hop. It's unique and different, but, you know, we, we keep pace. We keep pace with everything that's going on out there. Yeah, definitely. And the Philly soul sound at the time was so white-hot that Jackson's had to get on board once they left Motown to go to Epic to record the 1976 Jackson's album, the first album with Randy. Man. Yeah, that's, man, I knew, I knew you were going to educate me today. Every time we talk, man, I, I learned something new. And a lot of things uh, I was there for, a lot of things I was too busy to pay attention to. So, man, Right. And the, uh, yeah, I, I try to do that, man. And for those of you that don't know, go to YouTube, look up my work. I don't play around. But um, the one thing about Philadelphia that I think that doesn't get enough credit for is all of the rich legacy and traditions, like you mentioned, of all the acts that came out of Philly from Gamble and Huff. And, of course, everybody's favorite blue-eyed soul duo, Horror Notes. Oh, yeah, man. People ain't hip. I mean, Hall & Oates is just one of them kind of groups where, you know, just in my personal opinion, it doesn't matter what color they are. They just sound good, and I'm proud to have them uh, in my uh, catalog. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, good definitely. music is good music, no matter where it comes from. Right, music um, is colorblind. Now, let's jump forward. What high school did you attend, and did you cross paths with anybody that went to the School of Performing Arts? That's the same school that Boys to Men went to, and also Questlove oh, from yeah. the Roots. Oh, as a matter of fact, you mentioned uh, two people who I not only have crossed paths with, but had the pleasure of either collaborating with and sharing spaces with, uh, starting with Mark Nelson, who was the original um, member of Boys to Men. Now, Creative and Performing Arts High School, uh, you know, they're known for Boys to Men amongst other artists, but Boys to Men is one of their more signature artists. Now, I went to Central High School, which was like the the academia school. It's the college preparatory school, number one academic school in the city. And at the time, it was number two in the nation. But basically, it's, it's where uh, senators and mayors and all these uh, politicians, lawyers, doctors, MIT, you name it, that kind of thing. And like I said, I got into music late. But once the bug bit me, I realized, man, I don't really want to take on these Ivy League scholarships. Like, I was going to be, like, a professor or a lawyer or whatever. Like, they were throwing all these opportunities at me, but it wasn't speaking to me like music was. So I met um, Mike from Boys to Men um, before I met uh, Mark. And Mike was such a nice guy. This was before they got signed, but they were already, like, known of in the city. And he was just mad cool, you know. It's a shame he got the scoliosis and he ain't, you know, torn with the group anymore. But, you know, he was the, he was the first person that I met uh, who made me feel like, you know what, uh, I feel safe 
and like respected around these people because I'm out there in the leaning houses of Logan waiting for a bus in the middle of the night and he he's standing right there in the corner with me like you know what I'm saying like a real a real dude just making sure that making sure that you're straight yeah and then mm-hmm. uh, Amir for Quest Love you mentioned him um, you know he went to, he was actually in the same graduating class with Mark Nelson who was again in our group after we got the record deal so they go back um, I've been you know at uh, Amir's house in Philly. Uh, for, I'll, I'll never forget we had a, like a, some kind of Memorial Day party and he was giving out little bottles of limoncello and we we're like listening to music and you know he's a very cerebral cat but like down to earth and very approachable and cool like that so you know hats off to him you know and I, I, he deserves all the success that he gets um, right uh, I went to University of the Arts I didn't go to a music high school you know shout out to University of the Arts which is actually known for uh, the likes of uh, Stanley Clark uh, who's another uh, jazz legend and the, the Petersons uh, they go, they're more into uh, composers and like when you graduate high school, you know it takes a certain level to you know to advance. When I got to University of Arts, I thought I was going to be a music teacher. I was pretty much done with uh, with the performance side of things until the record deal came calling. And most people, they you know they go to high school, they get out of high school, and they go and they fly to California or move to New York and try to get a deal. We got discovered. You know, uh, as yet got discovered in Philly uh, by California people. So we flew out there uh, to sign the deal, not to find a deal. Right. So was this back during the time where labels were sending air and all reps to different cities to try to scout and find acts? Yep, they used to do those. Uh, you know, it's a Jack the Rapper type John. Or they, they would do oh yeah, yeah, guys. Jack the Rapper convention down in I think it was Atlanta, right? Yep, and then they had one that. Uh, you know, like, the uh, BRE. The BRE. There's another one that uh, they used to do over the Winter Franklin Plaza. It's all these kind of like label shows. Music conventions. Like, IM convention. Yeah, the IM convention. Mm. That's the one. The International African American Music uh, Convention, where they would have. I remember uh, you talked about uh, Christopher Williams. I'll be sure and Christopher Williams. We sang for all of them, trying to get a record deal. Father MC, uh, Andre Harrell, you name it. Anybody who would listen. Uh, Tony Terry made us his opening act because he heard us at that convention. Uh, here in Philly, but you go to all these places and you try to get the attention of people, um, and that's when labels used to develop artists. So they would get these budgets, these huge budgets, which don't exist anymore, to to develop an artist. So they got they got so used to having to tell artists how to be, what to do, what to sing, what how to dress, that the idea of working with somebody who knows what they're doing is like they don't know what to do with that. They're like, well, how are we going to justify spending all this money? Uh, unless we redevelop you and make you into something because we know best. We sell records all day, but they don't make records all day. That's a whole other story. Right, right, right. Right, so now once Boyz II Men exploded with Motown, Philly, and Cooley High Harmony in 91, which was mainly produced by another producer that I feel doesn't give enough credit what he's done, Mr. Dallas Austin, and when Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince exploded, did that kind of put the charge in the back of a lot of acts from Philly to saying, hey, if these two acts can break out of Philly, we can do it too? You know what? I, I, I regret to inform you that it had the opposite effect on most of the artists that I knew because Philly is, is a very unique city. People, great artists come from here, but not so many. Uh, nobody comes here to make it. So what happens is all the art, we had a lot of groups that were our contemporaries um, during that time. And when Boys and Men got signed, most of them would say, man, 
we're, we're wasting our time now because they're never going to sign two acts from Philly back-to-back because it took so long for one to break out. But as yet untitled, we took it another way. We're like, we, we believe in our own talent and that we have a unique sound, you know, that, that the world needs to hear. And we've come too far to give up because we've been together for six years before we got our record deal. So a lot of acts fell off on the wayside. And, you know, hats off to them because there's a lot of more talented groups that, you know, you know how it is. For every great act that becomes famous, there's ten other acts that may be technically uh, or sonically better, but just for whatever reason, politics and the business of music didn't, uh, you know, the chips didn't fall for them. So, right. Yeah, so you were speaking about as you had been together for six years before you got your deal. Did you guys cut your teeth in the local talent show circuit, open mic night, also to try to be open at for any big tour that came into Philly? Yes, 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 and yes. But we also left Philly. And we did, we did uh, the Apollo as amateurs in New York. We did uh, the DC conventions, those like those IM conventions and the, the Jack the Rappers in Atlanta. Like we would drive down, fly down, claim ourselves. We didn't have no money, so we'd all chip in for gas and rent a cheap car or whatever get where we had to go but by the time we got our record deal we were already known in philly because the, again that talent show scene like is also sponsored by like core's life they would do things every year the super fest budweiser and whatnot and our thing we got so good that when people saw that we were in the competition they would drop out they're like why waste the entry fee and i'm not even bragging it's just how it was like people said man why y'all have to be at this show because we trying to get seen y'all already and and then on the flip side, you had people saying, if you were going to make it, you'd have made it by now, you know. <laughs> so a lot of people didn't, after all that time, you know, didn't care. they don't care how good you sound. They're like, if you were famous, we'd know you by now. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, yeah, tell I, me. I had the reverse effect. Oh, yeah. So we're going to go back into, as you had the original lineup before Mark came in, but I want to go back into what we were talking about earlier with the impact of Philly and music culture. I feel that Philly hip-hop doesn't really get enough credit outside of DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. You have Schooly D come out of Philly, uh-huh. Steady B, Three Times uh-huh. Dope. Pop yes, art record yes. label doesn't really get enough credit, and then the great DJ Cash Money, 1988 winner yes. of the DMC contest. Tell me about the impact of Philly hip hop on you guys. Oh wow! Now, uh, first of all, when uh, when Touch of Jazz was first being formed as a company, which is Jazzy Jeff's company, uh, he was making an effort to sign us. Um, and shout out to Jeff because he really believed in us and we did some songs with him, uh, hanging out with Charlie Mack and all that and he got some producers for us. But the thing was, at the time, you know, he was still building his infrastructure and he had, they hadn't broken an act yet and we were shopping ourselves around to a lot of people. So again, we, we jumped when the iron was hot. Now, as far as uh, ESP, right, they, they had a, um, three times dope. You know that song? ESP, the act Nicholas one. Ah, the greatest man alive. But they had a studio that was down the street. Uh, from one of the guys in our group's house. So we would see them all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like just rocking it on the street corner. Um, Schooly D, I, man, I've been to his crib. He's got a warehouse, man. Like a freaking warehouse. You can go rollerblading in it. Oh, man. We had too much fun. But uh, Schooly D is another one. Are you hip to Bahamadia? Oh, man. That's another broad. Uh, Bahamadia name doesn't ring a bell. Well, check her out, man. Uh, she is one of those like conscious female lyricists. Oh, man from Philly, Bahamadia, no joke, no joke. Um, but to, to make a long story short, we, we come from that element, like the streets that we lived on, but because at the time in the 90s, 
all the labels wanted to do was copy boys to men. They, they were like, no, you can't rap and sing because we used to write our own verses and rap and sing in the same songs. And people were like, well, you got to pick one or the other because, you know, you can't do both. But now, you know, history has proven otherwise. And now if they got the singers rapping and the rappers singing. But this was before uh, the Fugees where, you know, it was a big deal uh, for Lauryn Hill to be rapping and singing on the same track. So mm-hmm. Philly hip-hop had more of an impact on us than we were allowed to show in our music, which is unfortunate, you know, but that's just the way right. the industry was at the time. Right. So did you guys think that you wanted to show that you were more than just suits and songs and wanted to have a more harder edge, kind of like what BBD was doing? Yes and no. BBD, okay, I'll say the the in the six years before we were signed, we didn't want to be like necessarily like BBD or like Boys and Men, but the reason why we were called as yet untitled was because we did not want to limit our style. The closest thing I could say to what we were going for was our version of like the male in vogue. How like you know how in vogue every song they could do rock, they can do hip hop, they can do R and B, and they would change their wardrobe, the look, and the sound to suit the material. Like how actors change characters with every movie, they're not stuck playing the same character over and over and over. So in a way, yes, like DVD had an element of that with the dance and like, you know, the, the rapping and all that. And we, it wasn't like we we're trying to be like, you know, the roots or, or any of these other acts that are out now doing those things. It's just that, again, when we were like writing and doing the kind of music we were doing, anything that had an element of hip hop, they wanted to pass that off onto somebody else. And then they, we, didn't, we wound up with no up tempos on, well, I'll say no hip hop up tempos on the first record. No, no complaining because that first record was a classic. But if we had a chance to do a second record or to redo a first record, we could have had at least one feature of enough tempo, especially since Def Jam paid for the first video. We were on the same soundtrack with Jay-Z and Foxy Brown, you know what I'm saying, and Case. Uh, you know, like we had other uh, bad boy acts. If you listen to that soundtrack, they managed to fit us in on a hip-hop soundtrack back then. So it seemed like Def Jam actually had more of the vision of where we wanted to go creatively than we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me about Orlando, Florida. I'm gonna let that one ride. I'm sorry, somebody's calling uh, me from Orlando, Florida, but, but now we I said decided the time for you. So they're gonna have to wait. Uh, Alright, so tell me about the original lineup of As Yet, how Mark came into the group and getting your deal with the face. Oh wow. Okay, I'll give you the short version. I I won't give you the six year long version, but short version is that in nineteen eighty nine me and Dion Allen uh, were both uh, singing in separate situations. This is after I, after I got out of the gospel choir and I got recruited for that group. They were called Dimension and Sound. And Dimension and Sound was uh, co-founded by a gentleman named Al Hyman, who still manages groups to the day in Philadelphia, not to be confused with Ali Hyman Productions. Anyway, uh, this fella, he, was just, he believed in me enough to want me to be in a group. And then in that group, there was a gentleman named Claude who was basically like the, this genius Brian Knight sort of arranger, piano player, really creative dude. Like I admire, to this day, I still admire his uh, unique creativity. He's the one that showed me how to bounce tracks on a double cassette, you know what I'm saying, because he was real resourceful like that. So me and Claude and Dion, uh, we met up because Dion went out of his group. He was in another group from what I believe they were called Devious and Dangerous, where was like a DJ and a, and a singing, kind of beatboxing, singing type of thing. He had a really the kind of hip-hop edge that we were just talking about. Like, imagine Dougie Fresh, you know, before Dougie Fresh being in the singing group, 
and he had the sickest beatbox. So he would beatbox and sing in front of this this uh, clothing store that was on my block. So every day when I'm on my way to school and getting on the train, because I was still in high school, and he was already out, and he was working. So I'd hear him singing, and I'm like, man, who is this dude that won't shut up? <laughs> he's singing to all the girls, and I'm like, he's all right, but, like, he's got way too much confidence uh, uh, to be out here like this working at this clothing store. So I challenged him to a singing battle up in the middle of the street because, you know, back then, you know, you're young and you're just bold and whatever. And you're in my neighborhood. What's he doing out here? And he, and he starts making fun of me. Oh, I didn't know uh, Julio's could sing. You know what I'm saying? We didn't build a Puerto Rican. And he starts you know, making fun of me. And next thing you know, we became good friends. We started singing together. We decided we wanted to get lead singers, all lead singers, all lead singers. Like everybody had – because that was the one thing I'll say about boys to men uh, and uh, – New edition, and well, you know, let's just start, let's let's keep it at those two. They everyone knew each person's name. They individually had talent, so we were looking for a group like to put together a group like that. We, you know, what I'm saying, and we met. This we were called as yet untitled when we we got Dan and Cora because his uh, his cousin sang in gospel choir with me, and the cousin was like, "Oh, you think you can sing? You can't sing. My cousin can sing. You got to meet him." And I was like, "All right, well, if he can sing, I want to meet him." Right? And it turns out he could sing. So I'm like, hey, if you sing circles around me, uh, that means I can focus more on the arrangements and spreading out, you know, the uh, the vocals amongst evenly amongst the group members. So then uh, we had this cat, Kenny Terry, who's the legendary uh, Kenny Bassman Terry. We actually were a four-piece group, but then we went to this uh, IM convention and went in Franklin Plaza, and we were singing for those guys I was telling you about. It was like, I think at the time we were singing for uh, Andre Harrell. And... Uh, all these artists were looking uptown. They were all looking for uh, whatever kind of groups were popular then. And we went into the bathroom to rehearse in the hotel, and we hear this big voice coming out of one of the stalls. And we look down, and the legs are backwards. He's cleaning the stalls because whoever it was had a big, high-pitched voice. He was singing Patty LaBelle in Patty's Key. Feels like another one, just like belting. And we're like, how is this voice coming out of the men's bathroom in the stall? Right? And it turns out that it was Kenny, the bass man. He was warming up, singing high parts. And we're like, man, you got this crazy range, right? Let's try, hey, you want to try singing harmony with us real quick? We, next thing you know, after he got off work, we, we got, we, he got redressed. We got some matching outfits, and we went back to the convention as a five-piece. Same day, that night. So that's how we got everybody in the short version. I, I may have skipped some of the original members, Claude and Dashan. Now, I'll tell you about Claude because he was the arranger then. And Dashan... Um, he was brought in to replace uh, a bass that we had before Kenny. Uh, another guy named Kenny Barber. Uh, I have no idea who he is, but I wish him the best. Uh, Kenny Barber was really cool, man. He's a brother that loved country music. He was ahead of his time. Um, but for some reason, it didn't work out with him. I can't remember because I'm old. <laughs> but uh, there's nothing personal. And then Dashan came in, you know, and he has, like, that baritone. He could hold the long, long belting notes. And he's still, you know, he's still in the current, the new current lineup. He's Him and Claude uh, have returned to that lineup. But we'll, we'll get to that because I'm just uh, answering one question at a time. <laughs> right, right. Because um, when I interviewed Kevin Thornton from Color Me Bad, he was telling me the same thing about the acoustics and the bathroom is good for harmonies. And then the story with Boyz II Men was I think Mike was in the bathroom and he ended up just filling in a part, and that's how he ended up getting in the group, I believe. Yeah, so Mike and Kenny got a very similar story. Right. So yeah. when you guys – so when you guys hooked up with LaFace, did you guys kind of fear that, okay, we're with L.A. and Babyface and that they were going to try to pattern you guys after boys, and how did you guys make yourselves 
stand out once you got your deal and was going to the studio down in Atlanta to record the debut album? Wow. Okay, that's a loaded question because on one uh, part of that question uh, implies that we would be concerned, but the thing is, we were wise enough to know back then that to be compared to the most successful group from your hometown in the current market was a good thing. So instead of it being a competition, we actually, every interview we've ever done, we would always point out how honored we are to be counted in the same breath uh, because they opened the doors for us because we were signed in order to be their competition, but we didn't enter into music to compete with anybody but ourselves. So we understand the game and how it's played, but, you know, there's no need to compete or try and tear anybody down. And the thing was with them, yes, we were concerned, but we didn't record in Atlanta. We went to Atlanta to take meetings and conventions and perform for the showcases and whatnot, and we did collab with some Atlanta artists, but the bulk of the record was recorded in Los Angeles because LaFace opened up a West Coast division and we were the first artists to be solely produced uh, in, on the West Coast. So we'd only come out to visit, you know, for special events that were held by the label. Um, although I love Atlanta and L.A. Reid uh, believed in us as well. He was definitely uh, hands-on um, in the business to a certain degree, but everybody would cons consider us Kenny's project, like his, you know, Kenny Babyface Edmonds. They considered us his pet project as opposed to like another act sign. Although, man, I partied with, well, we all partied with uh, TLC, Tony Braxton, uh, Goody Mob, Usher, all of Monica, uh, anybody who, the whole Atlanta squad, Society of Soul, um, man, uh, I can go on, uh, what's my man's name? Donnell Jones, uh, I mean, just the whole Atlanta scene, uh, remember Tony Rich and, uh, Sam Salter, uh, the, the whole Atlanta squad was tight. It's just that we were based out of LA. We lived in LA. And we recorded most of the record in L.A. So we were right. concerned that we'd get put on the back burner, though, because LaFace only puts on one or two acts a year. So we had to compete amongst our label mates to get enough attention to be considered a priority. Mm. So LaFace kind of sort of modeled how they ran their label, like how Barry Gordy ran Motown, so to speak. In a certain, yes, in a certain sense, yes. And it's funny because you know better than most. Their history, part part of Motown's history, uh, was expanding outside of their original offices uh, in Detroit. Um, and once they, quote, unquote, went Hollywood, you know, it's like, it's a bittersweet thing. Because I, I love Motown, and, you know, for what they represent and the, the, the obvious strides that were made on behalf of music, uh, society as a whole, you know, civil rights and everything else. However, the downside of that model, of a business model that's like factory-based, is that you have to fit a certain model criteria, meaning they take you, they shape you, they groom you, they put they assign a team to you, and you just show up, sing, wear what they say to wear, and go where they say to go, and you become sort of like a product, a spokesmodel for the label's agenda. Um, and again, I don't think necessarily that LaFace had a bad agenda. Um, I have no regrets. I'd do it all over again. But the point I'm trying to make is that, um, you know, even back then, there was this pang in my heart that knew that this was not the only way to do things. That why is it that certain types of artists are allowed to be locked away in a garage and bring you the record and then they mix and master it and polish it 
But meanwhile, other artists have they can't do nothing unless the label tells you where you're going to be before you're there. They know your life and how it's going to turn out before you do. And that, to me, just never sat right. It just never sat right. 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 I agree, because I went back earlier this week and listened to the Jackson's catalog from Motown all the way up to Epic. And you can really tell the growth of them once they made the switch from Motown to Epic, where they were able to have a little bit more creative control and more say-so. Yes. But I will, in To Be Devil's Advocate, a lot of that development came at the hands of being able to try, succeed, fail, and try again, which the one good thing that the labels used to do back then is they would invest in you, like do a seven-album deal or a five-album deal. You may think you're trapped, but if you once you get a couple of albums under your belt, man, you're going to be good at making albums or better than you were if you just did everything yourself and no, without any guidance. So there is a case to be made that perhaps uh, Motown may have uh, polished them up enough that they were then able to learn from, you know, what they went through and use that freedom. You know what I'm saying? They say that mm-hmm. you only appreciate being free when you, once you've been in a cage. So, Right, right, right. Right, so going Good into that. the studio, so going into the studio, making the debut album, did you guys try your hand at writing records, or was it once you got there to record, you all started bouncing ideas with Babyface and the other writers on the album? Ooh, it's a little of both in the sense that um, some of us had more uh, aspirations than others when it came to the level of creative participation in the record. And that's there's different types of artists. For example, you know, uh, Whitney Houston is known for not writing her songs. She shows up, she sings, and she makes it her own. And there's nothing wrong with that. And then other artists, they have to do everything from scratch. They want to write every lyric because it's coming from them. Right? Now, when you're in a group, it's a democracy, but not a diplomacy, <laughs> meaning that uh, it's like the only closed mouths don't get fed, and they, the labels respond to people who are up in their face more than they do respond to the people who are actually talented. Because most of the time, you can be creative, but if you're not assertive, they're not going to hear you. And then there's politics, where it's like you can write a better song than their in-house writers, but if you're not an in-house writer, they're not getting a share of your publishing, so there's nothing in it for them on the back end to take your song. And, man, I could tell you some stories about artists who've had uh, those kinds of experiences uh, of not being able to write their own song, and the song that got rejected by label A was their biggest hit on label B. Now, in our situation, I was fortunate. I did submit a demo, which became the final version of Hard For Me To Say I'm Sorry. So I got to co-produce and arrange a song with the legendary Babyface and David Foster. It was our biggest hit. Believe it or not, people say, oh, well, last night was number one R&B. Yeah, but it was number one R&B. But in the top 200, you know, Hard To Say I'm Sorry went number 12, which was a lot bigger deal. And, and it got a Grammy nomination for Best R&B Vocal Performance Group or Duo. Uh, and that was the one song that anybody in the group got to co-produce. Now, Mark... He had written some songs that got placed, um, you know what I'm saying, no, no, uh, what's the word for it, no, no sweat on him, no disrespect to him, but his, his songs weren't released as singles, you know, he didn't get the same kind of a hands-on experience having revived some of his uh, existing catalog. So uh, other than that, the rest of the group members, unfortunately, uh, for whatever reasons, uh, were not uh, represented creatively other than how the vocals were delivered, and in that sense, I would consider Kenny Terry in that category, in that caliber of uh, Whitney Houston, 
in the sense that like every vocal he sang rewrote the way the song went so if anything he deserved publishing on that record because without his voice on it and the way that it sounded nobody else could do it the way he did it right Uh, you mentioned yeah yeah you mentioned earlier that last night was on the nutty professor soundtrack so tell me how did the song come about for you guys and then the shooting of the video which you shared an interesting backstory with me before our conversation prior to the interview so tell me a little bit about that Word. Okay. So last night, a funny story. Last night, um, the original demo, Babyface actually uh, had a sketch of it. It had the chords and a skeleton of the beat, and he sang one take. And the way he sang it was just really straight and simple. He didn't put all the riffs in it or the, the harmonies, nothing, just a straight take. And even in that demo, we knew. Man, he gave us his A game. This is going to be a smash. We had to sit on that song for almost two years before it got picked up by the Nutty Professor soundtrack because he was working on Waiting to Exhale. He was working on Soul Food. Uh, he was working on a bunch of different projects around that time. And his, and Tony Braxton's album and his solo record. So, so he was a busy man. So when we got that demo, right? He, mm-hmm. he says, take it. Here's a cassette. <laughs> Listen to it. Uh, learn it, learn the whole thing, and, you know, we'll just try it out when we get there. So we show up at the studio, and he's like, okay, everybody line up. And he just went down the line and said, okay, sing this much for me. Last night. Okay, you try it. Last night. Then you try it. Last night. You try it. Last night. All right. Um, You. And then he just picked whoever's tone he liked at that moment. You're going and you're singing up to here. Okay, so you're going to sing last night up until... And we saw your vision in love. Which is trying to be Mark's part, right? So then with the I drank your wine, originally it didn't have the riffs and stuff that I put in it. It was just, it actually had more words. It was like, into your soul, girl, I heard you moan. Right? But somehow, mm-hmm. you know, the, the I did two takes. And the second take, I did this crazy run because I didn't remember the words. And... He's like, that's it, we're keeping it. I'm like, but wait, I can protect it, I can do it. He's like, no, we're keeping it, get out of the booth. And that was it. I didn't have time to think about it. We're <laughs> done. That, that, <laughs> that one part, uh, became people's favorite legendary thing. And it was something that was really off the cuff without any additional rehearsal or, I won't say effort because it takes your whole life to get to the point where you can let go and forget everything you know and just be in the moment. So that mm-hmm. being said, I'm thankful that the one, one of the things I learned from Babyface's style of production is to leave room for happy accidents and let, let the higher power produce what you don't think of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because your run on, on that verse, it has, for me, that Latin flavor, very Enrique, Julio Iglesias, John Sacada. Yeah, well, I love John Sacada. I love all of them, but I'm like, their records weren't even out yet. No, I'm kidding. John Sacada's record was out. Julio was big overseas, but his dad was more of the thing back in the early 90s. Uh, well, all all of them, you know, I, I love the fact that, uh, to me, when you can reach across the aisle and unite people from different backgrounds uh, into a new style, you know, like, uh, it's, it's, it's a bittersweet thing because being Puerto Rican, you, you don't want to be pigeonholed into what everybody thinks you're supposed to be. Like, you can only be Mark Anthony or Bad Bunny or reggaeton nowadays. Like, there's so many different influences and there's a common heritage with the diaspora the afro-cuban the afro-rican so it's all we all share this common musical heritage but society wants to marginalize you into this one little box 
But if that's the case, we wouldn't have Elder Barge. You know, do you know that Elder Barge is French? Everybody think he's No, I did not know. I, I, I did not know that. <laughs> Tell him something <laughs> I don't know. Babyface all the time. But look it up. You'll find it. He's, he's, I thought he, I thought he was like Puerto Rican or Latin because he got that Latin swag and he's got the curly hair. But technically, uh, you know, anyone who speaks a Romance language is technically Latin, but he's French. <laughs> you know, right. Get out of here. But like, again, like with Holy Notes or, or uh, Tina Marie, like certain artists you listen to with your eyes closed, Bobby Caldwell, you would never know what color they were. You just love the music. Right, um, which shows how back during that time with Tina Marie and Bobby Caldwell especially, they wouldn't show their yeah. face on the label so that they could get play on what was then called black radio, but now we call it urban yeah. radio. So that's how right. they tried to play both sides of the field without shocking the audience like, oh, he's white. Oh, she's white. Speaking of which, right, you know how it goes back even further, because before it was black radio, they used to call them race records. You know what I'm saying? Of course. They literally would call them race records. But like, <laughs> that's like, they're not even trying to hide the supremacy. But that's, that's a whole other conversation, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's more of a Professor Griff conversation. <laughs> right, 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 right. So once last night exploded and the video got major airplay on BT, whose idea was it to cover Hard to Sound Sorry by Chicago? Now, that is a story that I've been waiting to share with you. Yes. Go ahead. You 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 got you you have the floor. But feel free to edit out anything that's extemporaneous, but here's what happened. Uh there was a a woman in my life <laughs> who I flew from Philadelphia to Los Angeles around Christmas time. Now, around Christmas time, this is the first year that we had been away from Philly and our families, and most of the guys, they all wanted to fly back to Philly. And I was like, mm, you know what? I just don't – I'm not up for that right now. I, will, I want to stay here until, you know, I'll have my lady come, who I thought was my lady, I'll say, but, you know, uh, have her come out and chill with me. So she came out, and she did some other stuff. And she was running in. She used me as a way to get out to Cali so she can do some high climbing out there and do whatever. I have no idea. With water under the bridge now, I wish her the best. I'm not going to say her name on the air. But that being said, I was sitting around lonely and heartbroken, uh, feeling betrayed. You know what I'm saying? Feeling betrayed and hurt because, you know, she's, like, trying to sleep with the road manager and do all this other wild stuff, thinking she's going to get ahead in life. And I was just like, man, I can't believe it. I'm so stupid. I'm, I'm so dumb that I fell for this, right? So I'm sitting around. I got my Tascam 4 track, a recorder. And shout out to Tascam Porter Studio, right? And I had my little Elisa's MIDI verb and a microphone. And I was like, you know, I've always wanted to just to do that song over hard to say I'm sorry. The song was in my head because I was in that kind of mood where it was hard for me to say I'm sorry because I wasn't sorry. You know what I'm saying? I was sorry that things turned out the way they did, but I didn't do nothing to this poor woman. She had her own agenda. So it took on a different meaning for me at the time, and I, I poured my heart into the arrangement because of the way things were happening around me. I put my, my own, you know, it was like therapy. So I did the four-part arrangement, and then I sang the fifth part live because there's only four tracks on there. But when you make the bounce to the double cassette, you know what I'm saying? You can sing one extra part, but you got to do it live. And then I'm, I'm I'm triggering the effects on the, the, the reverb live while I'm singing the lead onto the final cassette, right? I just did it to, to pass the time and not go crazy. So then I get a call from Babyface's mother-in-law, uh, God rest her soul, uh, Jacqueline McQuarn. She called and says, what are you still doing home? All the guys went to Philly. I said, ah, you know, I thought what happened with the girls didn't work out, and blah, 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 right? And 
she says, why don't you come to Tahoe, to Lake Tahoe, uh, with me and Kenny. I'm like, Kenny who? She's like, baby face. Like, we're all going up to Tahoe for like two weeks. You know, like, why don't you come and kick it? You know, he, he thinks the world of you, you know, you're the only one still here. Right? I'm like, okay. So like me, John D., uh, Johnny Simpson, uh, Daryl Simmons, you name it, like the who's who, uh, people would come in and out and this, this huge estate that's shaped like an E. Right? So I had my little cassette. Right? We just finished going skiing. Like me and John D. were skiing. I never skied a day in my life. Right? So we get up, we get out there, and I had a moment in the studio, and it just felt like the right time. And I said, uh, "Mr. Edmonds, Kenny, you know, could you uh, listen to this and tell me what you think?" Right? And to keep in mind, he's got this big fancy studio, and I got a a cassette. <laughs> right? I pop in the cassette. Mm-hmm. John B was there. He was there. Daryl Sims. They, they, they got real quiet. They listened to the arrangement, the demo, and when it was finished, he says, "Baby says he looks at me and says." I like this. We're going to do this one. When, when we get back, you know, after the holidays, we're going to record this. Right? I was just like, thank you. And I just got really quiet. <laughs> Walked away. Went in the bathroom. Probably shed a thing or two. You know, then composed myself. Came back. Ate dinner. And we kicked it. You know, had great times kicking it with the family. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, Bayface had more of an impact on me uh, from that point on. And it was a bittersweet thing because, you know, I had to go through all of that suffering and heartbreak to even be in a position to make this piece of music. And then it became the single. Now, here's the other part that people don't know. Peter Cetera, from the original group Chicago, uh, was brought in by Davis Foster. We never thought in our wildest dreams that we would have him on the remix of the single. We thought, oh, you know, it'll just be on the album. It's great. But, uh, Babyface played it. He played while we, when we went to his house to record. He has a dope studio in his crib, like full on. So we go there, and you know, Kenny says, "Hey, you guys, um, you got this, right? Can you sing it for me one time." We'd rehearsed it. We sang it live. He says, "Oh, okay. Well, I'll be back in like four or five hours." He gave me the con. I sat down, and basically the arrangement that we did, uh, we recreated right there in the studio. Four hours later, he comes back. He put his uh, beat and his snap on there. You know, he had some a suggestion to, uh, like, originally it was supposed to be a fade-out at the end. It was supposed like, if you listen to the original Chicago song, there's another section. We cut out a few sections to make it more uh, commercially <clears throat> available. So that was a uh, shout-out to Babyface for those suggestions, and as well as putting his polish on it and the, the quality of the recording itself, the energy behind it and everything was great. So when he played it, he put David Foster on speakerphone. It was like, hey, Dave, I got something you need to hear. He plays it for David Foster. David Foster says, hey, um, you know what? That's great, you guys. I want to be a part of this. So he played a new piano part, uh, and then he calls Peter Cetera. Next thing you know, we're in the studio uh, recording with Peter Cetera and David Foster. Then the video, okay, the video that everybody makes fun of, right? People don't understand how expensive that video was back then. <laughs> they think, they, oh, it's green screen, Six Flags Great Adventure. What they don't realize is that we had a 22-hour video shoot, 12 hours of standing doing the same choreography in multiple outfits, just to wind up keeping what they kept for the white suits and all those background parts. When we recorded, we didn't know that it was going to be green screen or not. I mean, we knew that there was a green screen, but for all we know, they could have put uh, Cityscape behind us. They could have put, you know, Magic Mountain behind us. We wouldn't have known. We just showed up, and we did the choreography. We sang. We did the close-ups. We did the wardrobe changes. You know what I'm saying? And then Def Jam paid for half the video. It was produced by 
uh, directed by Billy Woodruff. Billy Woodruff did everybody at the stage from TLC to Tony Braxton, you know what I'm saying, million-dollar videos. So I'm sure, you know, it's not his finest work if you were to ask him. But the Hard to Say I'm Sorry video was actually the one where we're in the Hummer with the puppy and the whole thing. That, to me, was the best uh, that he gave us. You know what I'm saying? Like the first video, yeah, green screen, last night, you know, people laugh at it to this day, but you never forget the song. But that second video, man, with the spokes, we had like the microphone and the spokes and spinning. That was actually a suggestion I made at the dinner table. And I was surprised when I showed up on the set and he actually had it built. I was like, this motherfucker's not playing. This dude is not playing. So hats off to Billy Woodruff for that video. We right. Just showed, yeah, we but literally just showed up and put on what they called it to wear. Though. It wasn't like we put a lot of you know, pre-thought into that. Right. And for those of you that don't, yeah, and for those of you who do not know who David Foster is, Google him, do the discography he wrote after the love is gone for Earth, Wind, and Fire, amongst many hits. But he was also in a little-known Canadian band called Skylark, which originally did Wildflower, which was made popular by New Birth, and since been covered by many others. Woo. I know my stuff. Well, I, well, I, you know what? That's not in dispute. I would like to add that if you don't know anything else about David Foster besides the fact that he did Earth, Wind & Fire and uh, Whitney Houston, the Bodyguard soundtrack, uh, Celine Dion, My Heart Will Go On. All right, I'll just stop right there. Like, if you ain't got, you know, you don't know any of those songs, you won't know the stuff he did for Aretha Franklin or Shaka Khan. You know, we can go back. <laughs> yes, we can, we can definitely. one I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, we can definitely peel back the layers and go to discography. So now those two records blew up came out and the debut album came out it did well tell me about you guys going on tour who are some of the acts that you went on tour with and the process of after the debut album and going to the studio for a second record oh man okay so the first record came out the single was out in july so in the summer death jam uh put the single out on the nutty professor then the album didn't come out till october so that first summer, we had one hit, one number one hit. That's enough to get you on a tour. So we were doing, like, you know how they have, uh, at the time they had, like, the Budweiser Superfest. We we went on tour with uh, everybody from 112 and Jagged Edge and Drew Hill, Shy, um, you know, that whole circuit of R&B groups. But also, I mean, we were opening up for, like, the Wu-Tang in Europe. Like, we were doing these random shows, promotional shows in Europe when, when the summer tours dried up. We went to Europe because uh, by the time our second single came out, uh, basically the, there was like three camps. You had the bad boy camp, you know, LaFace's camp. Well, I'll just put it like this. In each camp, there was every, – every camp had their own R&B group. So like Drew Hill, 112, you know, and as yet. Boys Men was in a, a category by themselves because they, you know, already, you know, on their second and third records, and we're just coming out. So that being said, the touring was awesome. You know, I got they say I, I sowed my royal oats, but uh, you know, I think we were among the tamer groups out there. Like nobody got locked up, nobody had no kids floating around overseas that we know of. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it wasn't like that wild. Like no no drug arrests or guns and nothing crazy like that. You know, we weren't like we just not like that. But um, we did have a lot of fun. That being said. Um, yeah, uh, let's see, Erica Badu, uh, 
D'Angelo, uh, Eric Benet, Kenny Lattimore, you know, like I can go on, like a lot of artists. And then when we did the Grammys, well, I'm skipping ahead, but the second album, because you asked me about that. I'm going to stay on track. Okay, so after the touring happened, uh, the second single that had already come and gone in that year, 1998, we got uh, nominated for Best R&B Performance Group or Duo for that Hard to Say I'm Sorry. So at this point, this is the time when we're like, man, we hit all the, you know, checked off all the boxes for this first album. Yes, we would have loved to have sold more records, but it wasn't a disappointment. We went, you know, platinum multiple times over, if you include the singles and the record and the Nutty Professor, and we were on other soundtracks in between. So while we were recording, we, we had a seven-album deal, and we were recording the second record and a lot of songs. I mean, there are hundreds of unreleased as-yet songs. Um, we parted ways with Mark Nelson. In this recording process and during the touring, unfortunately, things reached a point where uh, we found it to be intolerable for all of us to move forward in this way. We tried correcting things amongst ourselves and as men with each other working it out, and we just could not see eye to eye. And uh, again, I wish Mark the best. He's out there in Vegas, and he's often performs with boys and men. But uh, he's parted ways with many groups, and his reputation speaks for itself. I wish him the best. That being said, uh, we got a new member named LaDon. At the time, we when we when LaFace uh, stalled on our second record, um, it was less to do with our talent, but more to do with politics and things, uh, management issues. And then once we got rid of Mark, they were kind of unsure. But we're like, look, you signed us without Mark. We got the record deal without Mark. Why are you so worried about Mark when we're telling you that we're not moving forward with him? He's not signed to our board. You can't make us keep him. And he doesn't want to be here any more than we want him here at the time. So that being said, uh, we went to DreamWorks eventually. We got a deal with DreamWorks. Uh, which was a division of SKG, which is Steven Spielberg's company, a division of the film company. We recorded, we were label mates with, uh, John B., uh, Flow a Tree, uh, Papa Roach, uh, Nelly Furtado, and, uh, a bunch of, a bunch of great artists that, uh, that we were, um, signed with. Um, and Blackstreet. And Blackstreet, uh, was also, uh, they, they're the ones that, uh, beat us for the Grammy for, they, they got, had no diggity out that same year. No offense to them, but I thought it was R&B best vocal performance group or duo, not uh, most popular recording. You know what I mean? It's one, anyway, it's, right. they, they won, and, you know, it's it's not a, a slight to them. It's just I didn't think that their song should even be in the same category uh, with what we're doing. With, it's, it's, it's Voice of Men, As Yet, Take Six, Kirk Franklin, and God's Property, and No Diggity. Like, it just didn't, it's no offense to them, but I think the Academy didn't really know where to put. Now they would call that more of like an urban hip-hop record, and we would be in pop. But back then, it was all huh, race record. It was all jumbo in one category. And while we're on yeah. the subject of, of no diggity, I want to send um, condolences to the family of Bill Withers, who passed away yesterday, R.I.P. Yes, Mr. Yes. Bill Withers. Rest in power. Now yes, you yes, yes. Yes. Now you mentioned you were mm-hmm. over in Europe. Did you guys cross over and do a lot of shows with a lot of the European R&B acts like Damage? 3T was really huge over in Europe at the time. Oh, and then yeah. early, early on, Backstreet and Instinct was cutting their teeth before they came over to America. Oh, you know what's up? See, if you look, if anyone is listening, looks online, you can find a version of Instinct singing "Hard for Me to Say I'm Sorry," the As Yet arrangement. My, my personal arrangement 
being sung by Justin and company. They're like on a train or a bus or something. They used to be our opening act because back then, uh, Transcontinental and those uh, labels that were putting out boy bands in the U.S., they would send them overseas first so that they can basically uh, make all their mistakes and cut their teeth uh, without, you know, being known of in the States until they got really good at performing. So they would go over there, get their feet wet. Meanwhile, we were there because we were already popular. So as strange as it seems, groups like Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were actually our opening acts. And, yes, they did borrow, if not, I'll say steal, but, you know, I'm glad they did in a way when I say take the arrangement and do what they did because it just, to me, it's an honor that somebody thinks that anything that I created uh, is, is of value. And, again, it's it's like paying it forward because I didn't write the song. It was, you know, David Foster and, and Peter Cetera. So it's like, it's like one good turn deserves another. So I, I wish them the best. So, yes, when we were overseas, we, we would do these shows. Damage, uh, you know, they were uh, part of the MOBO Awards that we were uh, presenting in with Lionel Richie. So I think Damage would have done really well here. There's just something about the market uh, and the way that the business is run here that doesn't seem to appeal to most of the, uh, you know, the artists. Um, from overseas, it's not or the labels. There's something going on there where like either they're asking for too much money to compete in this market, um, and so they're like, eh, we don't need it. Um, it's only a handful that break through, you know. And, and right. most of the time, they have really deep pockets. Right. Well, what made it more amazing when Soul to Soul, Loose Ends broke through with oh, their yeah. unique take of British R&B was that it. it crossed over on both sides of the Atlantic. For those of you that don't know, MOBO stands for Music of Black Origin Awards. And I think the main reason why a lot of those international acts have a hard time breaking in the U.S. is because I think the sound for the European audience was more pop, dance-heavy, whereas if you come over to America, you have to do like what NSYNC and Backstreet did when they came back to the States, which was take some songs off your international releases and put a few new records on for the U.S. market. See, and you're right about that because there's one thing that the labels do well is they will find you somebody to remix your John and make it palatable for the market. They'll find somebody to translate it to another language if need be to get it to fit. And that's the one thing. And on the flip side, right, I do believe that if you have the deep enough pockets and you believe uh, your team believes in what you're doing, like those groups like Soul to Soul, uh, Brand New Heavies, you know, like, oh, the U.K. acts that were unique, they didn't need so much of an upsell because there wasn't as much competition. Like, when you kind of come left field and you're original, people associate that uniqueness with what you're doing as opposed to, like, oh, you're just trying to be, like, the U.K. version of fill-in-the-blank. So there's, there's something to be said for that. Like, you can get around the Deep Pockets uh, metaphor if you got something original. So mm -hmm. I, I, but I feel where you're coming from with that whole thing with the – you know, like the style does definitely dictate the market. Right, definitely that, and which is why I respect acts from the U.K., because they make no hidden secrets about how much they were heavily influenced by urban music. I mean, George Michael had the number one album on the R&B charts, won AMAs for Best Male R&B Artist and Album for 1989. So I felt the backlash that he had was completely stupid. And like you said earlier, music is colorblind. George Michael and Lisa Stansfield, Dusty Springfield, yeah. Lulu, Stones, yeah. Beatles, we can go on and on with all the acts from the UK that were heavily influenced by American R&B and took their cues 
from American R&B, the Northern Soul Movement, which was the offshoot of what Motown yeah. was doing back in the 60s. They pretty yeah. much have a genuine love and respect for what American R&B has contributed to overall culture. Amen to that. The only, the only, uh, huh, the only gripe I have with the quote unquote, uh, culture vultures is when they don't not only pay homage, but pay royalties to these artists that uh, pioneered these things when they don't get their just due. If I'm living in squalor and you're making more off of my stuff than me, there's an injustice going on somewhere. Right. That's, that's my personal, but that has nothing to do. Again, this is separate. It's more of a, a cultural, class economic gripe than is uh, you know a racial or skin color gripe you feel me it's, it's an unfortunate uh, byproduct of the society here in America you know and again this is more of a professor Griff conversation so I won't get too deep into it but what I'm trying to say is that music belongs to everybody but some people abuse the privilege you know what I'm saying we're like, they're just right. like, like if you don't take them to court they're going to swear up and down they came up with it <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure that history is filled with cases like that. Yeah. So, um, you, yeah, you mentioned to me some of the songs you all ended up demoing, but ended up going to other acts. What were some of the songs that you guys did that later went on and got put on Group A or Group B? Oh, well, I mentioned one of them that I know for sure came out because um, I saw it online the other day. Um, there's a song by Blackstreet uh, that was originally recorded by As Yet. Uh, when we were on our second record with DreamWorks, we recorded a song, uh, with Warren Baby Dub Campbell. Shout out to Warren Campbell. Um, you may know him. Uh, shout out to him. Yeah, he's, he's the, uh, in addition to being like one of the top producers out there, he's also the, uh, husband of, uh, one of the, one of the Marys from Mary Mary. Of course. Also Erica Campbell. Erica Campbell. Eric, Eric, okay, he got, no, no, my man knows what's up. So that being said, uh, he, he wrote the song and it was so beautiful. We recorded it and, uh, it wound up on Blackstreet's album, uh, which again, no diss to them, but we were on the same label. And sometimes I feel like the labels know ahead of time. They're like, look, we're going to get your competition to demo your song and then you can recut it because we already know who we're putting out first because they got signed after us and their record came out before ours. Ours never came out. So, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And I love Black Street. This, none of this has anything to do with them personally because it's not like they, they're sitting around plotting against us back then. And it probably wouldn't have made a difference either way because um, until I mentioned it, I'm sure only the hardcorest of hardcore Black Street fans know Inner Rush, you know. Right, it was an album cut off of another level, I believe. Yeah, and it's beautiful. It, it's a beautiful song. It, I like what they did to it because, you know, I'm, I'm a big Mark Middleton fan. I'm a big fan of the group, but they've had so many incarnations, and I've loved all the lead singers they had. Like, you remember when they did uh, Joy? And they had, what's my man's oh, name? Oh, yeah. Uh, Eli, or what's his name? Levi. Levi. Levi Little, yeah. Levi Little. Yeah, he sang before, uh, he was before Mark Middleton. I like, you know, Chauncey and all of them, but they just never could keep one line up long enough, which right. I guess it's a good, it's a blessing and a curse because everyone looks at that group and says, oh, that's Teddy's group. But it didn't necessarily uh, open up, it didn't seem to yield uh, that many uh, fruits beyond that project. 
which is right because everybody's selling it and they're, they're you know deserve to shine in my opinion. Right, and speaking of joy, I was reading in various articles that when Teddy was doing interviews, stating that Michael, as in Michael Jackson, demoed Joy, and it was supposed to go on Dangerous, but it didn't make the cut. Now, I wouldn't doubt that, because around the time they were working on that, the same thing happened to uh, Ronnie Jerkins. He was recording so many songs for Michael, like 100, he got a budget to re- from, this is, now this is what I heard, I didn't see the contract. However, I, I remember being in the studio watching him uh, just make song after song tracks. He, he had like 100 songs that he submitted from Michael's record, and, uh, you know, 99 of them didn't come out. <laughs> so that's not a new story, but it's, it's uh, a lesson in how the industry works because the one thing that Clive Davis used to do, uh, excuse me, Clive Davis would do the same thing. One of his strategies was, He'd have you submit at least a hundred songs to pick ten, and the last two singles would be picked within a week to a month of the release date because he wanted the up tempo or the most current thing to be so current that the rest of the record is done already. Like that, that philosophy. We don't have an album philosophy anymore. It's more of like a disposable instant single. If it doesn't take traction in two weeks, it's dead in the water type mentality. Or you spend a whole year on one song because it takes so long to build up and ramp the promotion and get the ads and get, you know, uh, press and spins and, you know, like it's a different uh, approach to things now where like if you, from now, the life cycle for a song can be two years, uh, but the life expectancy is two minutes. Right. It kind of feels like it's like a hyper version of the 1950s and 60s where it was basically singles driven. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the differences with the singles back then was people had to physically, like, you can only listen on the radio. Like, now there's so many scattered formats. You know, I guess Spotify would be the new, you know, radio. But, like, you know, people have alternatives. They can get it for free on YouTube. You can hear whole songs when you want. Skip commercials. You don't have to plug into the radio at a certain time of day to hear an hour of your favorite music. I mean, not that we should go backwards. I'm just saying that, like, it was even harder for, like, Bring it back to as yet when we went platinum, that meant that we sold a million physical copies that somebody had to get in their car or get on a bus and drive or walk to San Goody. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Warehouse, Turtles, Blockbuster Music, Camelot, Record Land, On Cube. I can name all the defunct music stores. Right. So when you get there, you put on, like most people I know, you know, if you're on a budget, you're like, all right, I only, I'm coming here with a budget of X amount to buy one or two, maybe three albums in a month, if I'm lucky because I, you know, I'm broke, right? And then I'm like, okay, but before I spend this money, I gotta listen to the whole album. Like you know, they have a little headphone station, and you go to the little. Oh yeah, station the, the listening station. Mm-hmm. And they let you listen to a snippet of each single, right? So yeah, like I twenty, like thirty two, seconds. Yeah. So if if I like two. I'm, I'm, if I already like you as an artist and, you know, like, let's say, it's, I don't know, Anita Baker, I'm getting it anyway. Luther Vandross, you know, back in the day, like, this is certain artist. Stevie Wonder, uh, anybody who uh, takes this, this is artist albums that I just buy because it's them. Layla Hathaway, oh, my God. If Layla Hathaway puts out a record, I don't care what the album cover looks like. I don't even have to read. I just get it, right? But mm-hmm. if it's a new act, man, I, you got to get me with at least three songs before I spend 10 bucks because if not, I'll just buy the single and the B-side for two. So right, exactly. All of that, and then still choose you out of all those choices in the store. So if nowadays, a million, a million sales 
Nobody downloads anything when they can get it for free. So you'll have 100 million views and make less money than off of 1 million sales. Right. And now and now, if you want to get signed to a label, who would want to do that now? Um, they want a piece of your streaming with the 360 deal. And the 360 deal, for those of you that don't know, they want your merch money. They want your uh, tour money. They probably want your streaming money. And then that little advance that they give you is coming out of your pocket. Look at the VH1 Behind the Music where Left Eye breaks down a contract. We were signed to the same label, so we had those contracts. Let's talk about them. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you speak the truth. My man speaks the truth. So check this out, right? When mm -hmm. uh, the one thing I will say is that by the time a label is interested in you, you probably don't need them financially because you're already making enough money to pay for your business. However, the one thing that labels still seem to have a lock on is the kind of connections in mass media and the good graces thereof to catapult you into a level of fame that you probably wouldn't want if you've walked a mile in any of our shoes. When I say any of our shoes, anybody who's even had a slight taste of fame usually has a tragic story somewhere in there because it's not for everybody and anybody. When you're born into it, you squander it and don't realize it. When you earn it, you don't want to let it go, and everybody looks up to all these people because they're famous. When really, that's no guarantee. Uh, if anything, it's probably more likely than not that you are imbalanced in some way. If your natural reality uh, requires fame, if you can't sustain yourself as an individual and withstand uh, all that comes with that fame, it will eat you alive. It'll drive you crazy. You know, have, like you said about VH1, the stories for every story that you see on there, most of them are like tragic uh, stories or they have a comeback aspect because something happened where there's a, there's a uh, you know, they build you up and then they break you out. So, you know, I wish people the best. I think my idea of success now when it comes to all this thing, like with the labels, if a record label says, hey, we believe in you and we, you know, we'll want to do a distribution deal or we'll pump in some, uh, promotional money in exchange for a share of the profits, I'm all in. Let's do it. It's a nice right. deal for this project only, and I can do that all day, every day. Um, but in addition, you know, like, there's got to be something in it for everybody. Like, you know, the days of, of artist development are over. Uh, I recognize Definitely that. Definitely that. Yeah, and they would rather have 10 new artists than one uh, expensive artist. And expensive means you know what you're worth. <laughs> so, and when you're as old as I am, um, you got to do it yourself uh, in a sense that, like, you know, I'm not Michael Jackson. You know, I I don't have any illusions of grandeur. You know, I'm not Frankie Beverly, you know, like I, so anybody who's interested in doing something with me is because they believe in the music that I'm creating, not because they're still trying to sell as yet records from 1998. <laughs> right. And um, which you and I, we had a conversation about this before we did our interview. And um, that's what I respected about um Prince, because Prince was all about DIY back in a time when the labels was the only game in town as far as how to get a deal and how to distribute your stuff because they were the gatekeepers. They controlled where your stuff was going to go, who was going to play it, and greasing some palms and some radio stations. Well, yes. 
Um, and one of the things that he was ahead of his time on is that he sold his music exclusively from his website. So he controlled all the traffic, all the views, all the clicks, all the spins, and everything in between. And he kept that database of, of you know, subscribers and his fans. Uh, that relationship where, like, you know, if he was going to do a pop-up concert or he, he released unreleased singles or, you know, given that people are doing that now with all the rage. Well, people are giving away, you know, the ones where they say, pay what you what you think is fair. Like, we'll give it to you for free, but, you know, we'll take an optional donation. You know what I'm saying? But the, the thing is, though, right, there's an illusion that a lot of people are falling for nowadays. They think, oh, well, you have no excuse because you've got the Internet and you can reach everybody. No, you can't. I'm going to tell you, you can, you know, you can believe what you want, but if we are all on equal footing and anyone can blow up, why is it that there are advertising schemes and algorithms set up so that even though you have 20,000 followers, only 200 people see your music unless you pay? So there's still a firewall of money. And again, that's how these labels still control the industry. They already saw this coming. They've been legislating. They've been fighting in Congress, trying to change the laws to benefit them and say, well, look, if you want access to make money off of our existing catalog, you've got to make it more difficult for these new artists uh, to break free because they're going to suck up the bandwidth that we need to sell our music. So if you still want to get to a certain level, if you want to get you know, into the millions and millions of views, you're going to have to grease some palms. You're going to have to buy ads, pay for it, streaming and maybe even higher publicists and separate and I'm not saying these are bad things. I'm just saying that it's not as easy as sitting up in your mother's attic, making a track and then releasing it and expecting all of a sudden because it's great music that someone's gonna fall in love with it and the right person will share it and next thing you know, it'll make you ten million dollars. Mm. If that happens, it's the exception to the rule. It doesn't prove the rule. So no, it does not luck with that. Yeah, no, no, it does not. You have the influences too. Now, back to as yeah. yet, man, the time period where you guys were out, it was stacked with Army groups, you guys, boys, 112, Jagged Edge, Next, Profile, Ideal, Drew Hill. I can go down the line of all those yeah. groups. So how did you guys feel knowing that all these groups were out and you looking amongst each other and you're like, I know we're better than this group. Oh, we can out sing them under the table. We're, I'm gonna be real with you, man. This is this is not be be all the be all the way real. Keep it keep it one. Always, always. Now I'm I'm reverting back to the twenty something year old me, the nineties me, not how I feel now. But at the moment, when this was all going on, we honestly and I we had these conversations in our group every single day as part of our routine. We would remind ourselves how much better we were uh, than these other groups. Not we're better at being Drew Hill or we can out-sing them or no. We just would look at our advantages and say, well, look, uh, we're the only ones with five-part harmony. And if there's another group that has five members, they sing in three parts in an octave and one guy's rapping. Like, they ain't doing what we're doing. And, yes, take six, they got six-part harmony, but, you know what I'm saying, we're, we're younger and, you know, we're better looking. Our bass sings in three octaves. Like, we'd always come up with an excuse for why we were – I say an excuse, but a reason – why we were better than other groups and not better like we're better people than you and you're beneath us, none of that. But like back then, it was a competitive thing, but we weren't trying to out-group another group. Like we had respect for all of them because they had their pros and cons too, like Silk. You know what I'm saying? Like we used to make fun of them and love them at the same time because they, they had a distinct sound. 
But we're like, man, that little ball had to do with the high voice. Singing, bad roll, bad roll, bad roll. And singing all the high notes. I can't even sing up there. Bad roll. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we're like, man, what are you squeezing down there to hit the high note? Right? We're making fun of them. And like, shy, oh, my God. Shy, they're going to want to kick my ass after I say this. Part of my French, but you know, we used to be like, "How did they even get a deal?" <laughs> like, I don't care how good you look, they're just going, "Ooh, da do 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 do," and that's the whole song. They might as well just cut it right there, because the whole song is the same four chords. It's actually one chord just inverted. <laughs> anyway, Disclaimer: yeah, these, these, these are not my views. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We, we, right. I'm just saying that we we would we really would clown them back then. And you know what? I, to be honest, I remember one time. We were talking to uh, 112, and the way we became friends was because, you know, they would say stuff to Q. Q was, he would say, man, you know, tell you the truth, man, we hated y'all when y'all came out. And we were like, man, we hated y'all too. Okay, cool, we hate. You know, like, we, it was like that. And shout out to Q. Shout out to 112, man, because amongst all the groups that we performed with, I feel like they were the closest ones to being real friends. You know what I'm saying? Like, where we could hang out and there wasn't no competition because uh, our we had the same parent company. Because uh, uh, Arista was also the Faces and Bad Boys parent company, you know what I'm saying? And like you know, we we had mutual friends from all the different parties and everything. So yeah, we we used to say we knew we were better vocally, and it was kind of an injustice that we didn't sell as many, if not more, records and all this other stuff. Like it's easy to if you grade success by the metric of popularity and record sales, you're really not looking at things accurately because you have to ask yourself um when you strip away those numbers what is the impact of what you've done and to me the biggest the best thing that's ever come from the whole experience of having struggled to succeed in this industry and fail successfully and rebound the biggest success the best thing I've ever contributed to this world is my three children. Period. Period. Like, if nothing else, you know, I can say that, if, you know, that that is what I have to show for all the efforts right. that I made. Right. I brought three beautiful children into the world. Right. Family over everything is what they say. Now, with all of you guys, like Shy, Voice to Men, Silk, Intro, Tell me about the influence that gospel groups like Take Six and Commission had on you guys' sound and also how you all looked at a group like a New Edition and kind of said, okay, we can incorporate a little bit of what New Edition is doing, but take the sounds of Commission and Take Six and really, you know, explode with it. Wow. Well, dur during that time, right, uh, when we were developing our, our sound, the one artist that we all agreed on was Take Six. Uh, because they had really great harmony, and fortunately for us, uh, the group had the ability and the ear to dissect. You know, we we would break their songs apart by ear and recreate them and perform text six songs live. Like at the Apollo, we sang "Oh Mary, Don't You Weep" and brought the house down. Dan Lovelace, and man, I would love to find that recording. It's out there somewhere. But um, make a long story short, Commission they were the predecessors of what became the groups like the Jodices, uh and like we talked about before, and a lot of people know that, the, you know, KC referenced uh, running back to you when he says, my arms are open wide and I don't have to cry no more. And um, 
you know, Voice of Men, when they did uh, that Ba-Doo, they stole the whole ring. Well, I don't think they stole, but they they, they recreated. They borrowed. And, and this, yeah, and that's all good. That I think they say imitation is a sincere form of flattery. So that being said, um, there were a lot of other gospel artists around that time, like Daryl Coley and Vanessa Bell Armstrong. Uh, I mean, I can go on, but, like, just certain types of, oh, man, even uh, James Moss, the Clark sisters, uh, Maddie Moss Clark, uh, Man, there's so many artists. But the guy Dawkins and Dawkins. Oh, you know, before it was Dawkins and Dawkins, right? There was just uh aren't they the I was gonna say aren't they the son of, of they're they're the son of the senior Dawkins. I gotta you know I'm not not you know I'm thinking of uh Tremaine Hawkins, never mind. Sorry. That's mm-hmm. that's a whole other, oh my god, Tremaine Hawkins. Oh, so I was t- I'm gonna I'm gonna hit your listeners to this. Uh, something that we talked about in regards to those gospel influences. If you love Take Six and you love any of the gospel arts you mentioned from Take Six to the Clark Sisters to Commission, uh, there's an album that a lot of singer-singers are hip to. It's been out for a minute. It's called Handel's Messiah, Together We Sing. It's a gospel remake of classical music from the composer named Handel, it's A N D E L, but it's got the Clark Sisters and Commission singing a duet together called King of Glory. It's got Vanessa Bell Armstrong and Daryl Coley singing Comfort You My People. It's like it's one of them joints that like if you love music, music and singer singers and you happen to be of a gospel uh bent, you'll enjoy it that much more. Uh we got to work with Mervyn Warren from Take Six on our first album. So to answer your question, I think because of us working with uh Mervyn Warren and Brian McKnight who Whose uh, his brother is in Take Six? Claude, probably yes. They're single-handedly, without a doubt, the largest influence on the As Yet sound. I would have to say it's Take Six. However, um, not the only influence. Right. And also, while we're on the subject of gospel, I got to mention the group company. Um, Donald Lawrence was in that group. Oh, they yeah. had they were signed to Giant. They had. Uh, a song, Somebody's Praying for You, and Angel, which was produced by Mr. Stanley Brown. Oh, yeah. Man, Mr. Man. I just love them. Now, shout out to Donald Lawrence. Uh, my favorite song that I still, I still listen to to this day, and it's, it's probably not that old to y'all, but you know, um, I know that you. The song you do with, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it's, it's Kelly Clark. I mean, Kelly. Oh, I was about to say Kelly Clarkson. No, it's uh, Kelly Price. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kelly Price uh, and Lejeune and all them. Uh, what's it called? Um, there's two versions of it, actually. There's one with the Clark with Karen Clark in it, and there's one with Kelly Price in it. It's a Donald Lawrence single, right? Uh, God's favorite. Mm-hmm. It's more precious than life. Oh, my goodness. you got to hear oh, both man. versions of that song. It's got One's got Kim Burrell on it. Oh, man. She's another one. Oh, man. Sangers. Sangers. Not singers. Sangers. Sangers. We used to bump him all day and night. Not that we don't anymore, but like her first records. Oh my goodness. All day and all night. Right. And also going back to Philly, we're going to circle back to around like 99, early 2000s, when you had the Neo Soul movement coming out. You had acts such as Jill Scott, Music, The Lyle. Floretry kind of came out of that camp. So tell me what was it like being around at that time, seeing the Neo Soul movement take off? Oh, man. You know what? One of the best things, I feel like that movement was ahead of its time because it, the Neo Soul movement divided our group um, amongst certain lines. And without calling out people's names, 
some members were like, ah, you know, that's old folks music, and I like digital, man, because that's where it's at. And you like music that has instruments in it. <laughs> and I, I'm just like, what is music without instruments? Uh, it could be acapella, but your voice is an instrument. What are you talking about? So we would get into these arguments because everybody, you know, some people want to be hip and new and try to follow the thing. And Neo Soul was kind of like, we took it for, well, I won't say we, but some of us took it for granted because that's what we grew up listening to. Was like there's so many open mics where we'd have a house band, and the house band would know every song. And they would just jam out on different chords, and you would freestyle over it. And that's a lot of the, the chords that came out of the church, the same way that, like, uh, let's say the Clark Sisters uh, influenced Faith Evans or the commission influenced Jodeci, the, the musicians that played in the church uh, would put all these cool, soulful riffs and chords, uh, substitutions, alternate voicings and whatnot uh, over traditional R&B, and that, combined with Philly's unique hip-hop and soulful vocals, became this sound. And we actually got a chance to work with uh, Marsha Ambrosius from Flowetry um, while we were signed to DreamWorks. We were uh, label mates with them. So we had a chance to, like, create some new things, again, that never came out, but those recordings exist. But unfortunately, because I know, already know, the next question is going to be, what happened to those songs? Can I get a copy? But the thing is, if the producers never got paid, even if we co-wrote the songs together, it's not my place to put their music out without them getting paid. It's not, you know what I'm saying? So it's right. a tragedy. It's a tragedy how many beautiful pieces of music. Uh, we made uh, like enough neo-soul songs to be an album, and I still to this day incorporate, because it's part of who I am and where I'm from, incorporate some neo-soul vibe. You know, like I, I, I love a good and classic road sound, you know, or a whirly. I, I love alternate voices and keys and just different sorts of soulful feelings. And I feel like Neo Soul has stood the test of time. When they say if, if it's if it lasts a year, it's a fad. If it lasts three years, it's a trend. And if it lasts five years, it's a style. You know, it's a vibe, and pretty much you're stuck with it. When I say you're stuck with it, uh, how long has it been since trap music came out? <laughs> Don't answer that. But the point is, you know, I think there's always going to be room. Like once you've lasted past a certain you know, once you put a stamp on something, you can't unstamp it. And I'm so proud of the Neo Soul movement because it actually captures the, to me, it accurate, accurately captures the vibe, the musical vibe of Philadelphia. All of these artists from the roots to, uh, I mean, you, you remember Vivian Green? Oh, one emotional there. roller coaster. Yes, I do. Yeah, man. I mean, like, shout out to Jill Scott. Oh my God, I still bump her to this day. But I mean, you know, there's other artists that didn't get to shine. You know, that the, that the music Soul South got. You know, Jaguar Wright. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. You, you know, uh, Carol Riddick. Oh, there's, there's a bunch of them. Lady Alma. Um, but also, even artists like Leda Hathaway has incorporated Neo Soul into their music. And it's the closest thing to that, that fusion of, like, soulful jazz, R&B music for when you outgrow. When you outgrow uh, that teeny bopper radio. When you'd rather sip a glass of wine... Uh, at a cabaret with your pinky out, then be at the... Be on your grown man stuff. Yeah, man. Like the, the stage before, when you're about to make some babies. <laughs> right, right. When, yeah, when you're right, at the... Man. Yeah, but you're at that stage when Johnny Gill talked about these are the things that change boys to men. Amen. I know that's right. <laughs> exactly. So now, yeah. I also want to talk about, too, as well, 
by you being Puerto Rican, how I think the freestyle movement does not get enough credit for the groundwork that it laid for Latin R&B, Latin hip hop. So like your Bad Bunnies, your Daddy Yankees, and your Shakira, J Lo. And I want to give a special this guy. I feel was so underrated as a musician. I'm glad that he's gotten his shine behind the scenes. But my man Bobby Ross Avila. Oh yeah, him and his brother actually were uh, partners. The Avila brothers were uh, people don't notice they were partners on the beats, the beat, the Dr. J's beats. Mm, I did not know that. So he's probably living off some royalties. Yes, yes, they they were part of the development team. They're on the box. If you buy the headphones. You will see somewhere on there. I, I look. I'll, I'll take a picture and send it to you. Um, that the Avila brothers uh, were co-presenters of the beats, along with Dr. Dre, and that, that's a big thing, especially you know. Now, I'm not one of those cats. I grew up in Philadelphia. Both my parents are Puerto Rican. Well, one of my parents is dead. But that being said, being born there or born here doesn't mean that it's all one culture and it's all one thing. You have Afro-Puerto Ricans, you have Euro-Puerto Ricans, you have some of us that speak Spanish, some that are darker and lighter and everything in between because we have a history of the slave trade working the sugar kings with the indigenous people known as the Taino, which were a form of what we would call Amerindians, uh, along with Europeans from various points of Spain, Portugal, and whatnot. So it's difficult to ex- to explain or to try to educate people to say, look, you know, we're not, not only are we not all the same, but we're more alike than we are unalike. Like, chances are we both have a common heritage. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right, it's like, right. With, with, like, it's a separate country, and that just because you speak Spanish, you're from Spain. That's, like, a whole other thing. That's a whole other mm-hmm. thing. Like, you know, no offense to any other of, of my uh, fellow cousins who speak Spanish or not, but the American culture tends to be ignorant towards these things. So for me, I didn't choose, nor would I choose to not be or to be Puerto Rican. It's just a circumstance of birth. That being said, uh, you know, I feel as though it's important to know all parts of your history. And if you know that the slaves were brought to bring the sugar cane to work the sugar cane for the United States, and that slavery ended years Years after it was ended in the United States, they still kept it in Puerto Rico for that purpose. You know what I'm saying? So it's nothing, it's not anything to be excited or brag about. It's just to be knowledgeable so that when you see them trying to divide us, uh, you can say, hold, 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 hold up. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, hold on. We're, we're, we're more alike than we are unalike. And that right. being said, right? Right now I'm in a group, a singing group. After I thought I was done with this. I thought I was done because, you know, the music changes moved on. But I came back to Philly, you know, after my divorce, and I met these guys. They were already together, and one of them used to be in the Barrio Boys, that you mentioned before, a group of Puerto Rican cats from my hometown who can sing their asses off. And they wanted me to produce a song for them. And after I met with them and was kicking it with them, and, you know, I came in thinking I was just going to be like a guest artist on this one song. But by the end of the recording, I was like, hey, you guys want a fifth member? And they were like, get out of here. And I was like, no, I'm getting in here. Let's do this. You know, because I'm like, you can't afford me because, you know, if I charge you for every song and I want to be in the song because I want to be a part of what makes me feel good about music. And it wasn't because they were Puerto Rican, but because they are Puerto Rican, it's almost like an added thing of like, well, we have a lot in common that we don't have to explain. We just do. (laughs) It's unspoken. 
Yeah, it's an unspoken, right. some familial sort of connection. Right. Not a not a us versus them because it's all of us right. in this together. Right. But after having right. explained that to you, I think you know right. the fans will love it because we're trying to keep that Philly sound, that '90s R&B, acapella, five-bar harmony, that whole thing. Uh, this is the closest I've got to ever feeling. As a matter of fact, some of the uh, arrangements that never made the As Yet records, we're singing now. So check out Viva Mas, V-I-V-A-M-A-S, VivaMas.com. You know, Google us. We just did a remake of uh, Garth Brooks uh, when he did that alter ego as uh, Chris Gaines. Mm-hmm. Remember that, John? Heaven Knows? It was a big oh, single. Oh, yeah. But everybody made fun of him because they were like, oh, why is he doing R&B? He sounded like Robin Tate. But, you know, that was back in 2000. The song's 20, almost 21 years old now. You know what I'm saying? We redid over oh, right. acapella. Shot a video in Philly with the skyline in the back. And right. people are loving it right now. We, we, we should have an album out this year. Okay, DivaMasa.com. And on a side note, I'm going to deviate real quick to talk about Puerto Rican food. I discovered my love of Puerto I discovered my love of Puerto Rican food when my wife and I we went to Las Vegas last year. Went to this little restaurant in a strip mall. Food was bomb. I had some pernil. I had some mufongo. I was like, oh, man, I am in heaven. And this is what I get for living in the South all my life and not having that diverse neighborhood. I mean, I fell in love with it, man. Oh, man. Well, I'm going to break it down for you real quick. There's, there's one secret I can share with everybody. The secret to great Puerto Rican cooking it all boils down to the sofrito. Now, sofrito, sofrito is like it's a it's a spice, it's a sauce, it's a combination of specific ingredients, certain types of peppers, herbs, and spices that you blend and make yourself. That becomes a key ingredient that you then add to your rice and beans, to your pernil, to your mofongo. Um, sometimes it's used as a side dipping. It's it's basically like well. Without giving away the full recipe, you can look it up online and find sofrito. But it's kind of like, okay, the Mexicans have salsa, the Indians have curry, we have sofrito. It's like there's so many ways to do it up, but it's like a five-spice or a six-spice type deal. That's what gives the tang, and, that, and a lot of it was taken from the uh, African cuisine uh, and mixed in with the Spanish cuisine and with the local uh, vegetables uh, on the island. So it's definitely uh, one of my – if you like Jamaican food, or any kind of Caribbean food, you will love Puerto Rican food. And if you've never tried it, it won't burn your face off. But, man, if you go to the right places, oh, man, you'll be so thankful. Right. That's how I am because I'm very picky about what I eat and as far as spices go. But that's a whole other topic for another day. Now, back to the music. Um, So with the digital age and everybody being all self-centered with the likes, Instagram, TikTok, whatever social media platform you use, do you think – we have seen the end of groups, or will there be another cycle where groups will make their way back again? All right. I actually, I'm noticing a resurgence of groups. Uh, you would think, all right, you would think that because of social distancing <laughs> that people wouldn't want to congregate. However, what I'm noticing is that there are groups that all were already in existence before this crisis. Um who, you know, for whatever reason, have more time to rehearse. Um, and there are groups, uh, in, at least within the tri-state area that I'm noticing online. You know, I'm, uh, I'll, like I said, I'll send you some links to some folks because, again, uh, to answer your question, there's always going to be, as long as there is music, 
there's always going to be an incarnation of what groups are. Now, it changes form, you know what I'm saying, like from boy band to R&B, like you know, how you were talking about New Edition earlier, right? New Edition mm-hmm. was a spinoff of the Jackson 5, you know what I'm saying? But also the Osmonds spun off from the Jackson 5. And also New Edition, you had groups like Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, who were also influenced by Azet, who was also contemporaries of Boys to Men, who were also influenced by the Temptations and the Four Tusks, four and five. Like that, that pattern repeats itself. Right. In a new beat and today, not, I could go on. Yeah, let's not forget New Kids on the Block. Oh man, I, I couldn't forget them at all. Now that's the, the exactly. You, thank you for helping me prove the point that no matter what the era is, there's always a group of some sort whether it be girl groups like Destiny's Child or some group that we haven't heard of yet. Now, my personal contribution to the future is Viva Mas. We're working on a record, man. The stuff that we got that's unreleased is coming out. We're in the process of shooting the videos and, you know, building the social media campaign. Um, and I think that as long as people are willing to work together, uh, and they there will always be a love for that. Because a lot of these colleges, too, especially the HBC, I'm sorry, HBCUs, um, they have choirs. And when you graduate and you leave a choir, some people still have that love for the harmony. And, you know, I see there's there's a group, um, and it's funny because this is not a historically black college, but there's a school, there's a group called uh, Voices of Yale, right? And Voices of Yale uh, is basically a handful of people of color on the campus who decided we're going to start a choir outside of the glee club because we want to do music that's more soulful and more representative of the diaspora. They took it upon themselves to cover hard for me to say I'm sorry, and I was so honored. So shout out to Voices of Yale. And, this again, these are the future. These kids are 20 years younger than me. And although I, I turned down Ivy League scholarships, but I still made it to Yale <laughs> in the form of right. <laughs> but that right. Which yes, makes- there's going to be groups, yes. Yeah, which makes it interesting because I thought that once once the sing-off on NBC and Pitch Perfect exploded, that you will see a resurgence of acapella groups. They're out there, but it's more of a thing where I think the expectation is so low from relative to where we come from. See, we're used to consuming our music the way we were used to consuming our music. So if you're if you and I are expecting uh, groups to have the kind of impact they had in the 90s, it's probably not going to happen. You know what the closest thing is going to sound weird, but the closest thing that I've experienced to that since then is pentatonic. And I love pentatonic. But as far as I love them crossover, too. As far as being a crossover acapella type group that made other people want to copy and sing what they did and like that kind of mass influence and record sales and all those things, that kind of a slap is only reserved for people who are plugged into the machine. Like, if you're meant to be that artist, you already know who you are, you know? So that being Mm -hmm. said, I don't think there will be a market. I could be wrong, which I hope I'm wrong. I would love to see a, a flourishing of primarily groups like it was back then. But the culture that people are being raised in is so individualistic. And so me, 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 and so narcissistic. Like, keep in mind that these groups that were coming up 
We didn't have Instagram where, like, everybody's got – can you imagine if you're in a group, but you're competing with people who have more and less followers than you, so they think they're more popular, which means they're more valuable to your situation, or they've got people in their ear all the time telling them that they should be – I mean, it's the same thing it used to be times 10. Right. So it's less likely, not impossible, but less likely that we'll have, you know, four different individual singing groups in the same genre – uh, all on the same top 10 chart in the same market at the same time like it was back in the 90s. But will there be some really dope groups of which a few of them will be on, let's say, Tiny Desk concerts, you know, or like my man Jacob Collier. He's working with uh, Quincy Jones right now. He's doing acapella as one dude, and he brings in musicians and artists to do these really cool, funky arrangements, and he's he's like a phenom in regards to his arrangements. They're like take seven. So I recommend <laughs> Jacob Collier anybody. He's he's a he's another one of them soulful white boys. He's just that dude. And again, right. Uh, I don't know what the future holds uh, because I've been wrong before. I thought we'd be done right. with trap music by now. <laughs> I'm not trying to take nobody's bag away, but you know, I don't do that. I know I would never do that. So, but I used to think you remember when Timberland? Like I love Timberland, but like there was a certain beat that was associated with him. That boom, mm-hmm. yeah. If I hear another doom, 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 get, I want to fucking blow my brains out, right? Like, after right. a while, you just get sick of hearing the same thing no matter what it is. It don't matter who's doing it. You're just like, maybe you won't want to hear acapella because you're like, damn, I need some drums in my life. Or I need some strings right. or guitars. Like, I'm sick of hearing just acapella all day. So, right. you know, it, it, that sword cuts both ways, man. Right, so, which I, I for me... Yeah. Yeah, like, which for me, that's what makes Bruno so refreshing where he's repackaging what was out in the 80s and 90s and giving it a fresh take because he studied pretty much 80s, 90s R&B. Pretty much the whole 24 Karat Magic album was 90s R&B revisited for me. Yeah, and and, and in a way, it's it's for better or for worse. I think a lot of the haters, by the way, shout out to Bruno Mars. He's also a fellow Puerto Rican. People don't know that too. He's also Puerto Rican, Filipino. He's a Puerto Rican, but um, you know what I'm saying. The the thing is about him. The haters will say, "Oh, all he did was copy X, Y, and Z." But what they're really saying is, "Why didn't I think of that combination?" Because I grew up listening to it. This is so familiar to me that anybody could have done it. Yeah, but you didn't do it. He did it with his team, right. with his people. So I give him props because, as derivative or as whatever as the critics say it is. It feels good to listen to. He's great in performances and at concerts. It's still good music. The world needs that instead of so many critics and, you know, not enough uh, creatives. So yeah, because that album. Bruno Mars. Yeah, I love Bruno too because that album I played all the way through. And when I first heard Finesse, I immediately thought of Ralph Trezvan. Right. Oh, man. Immediately. Like, it, it was definitely a cut dive to the scene going on. Ralph's album, and uh, just a few more questions, and um, I'm going to get you out of here. Thank you, so, um, You got me all day. Let's do this. All right, so speaking of Philly, we haven't talked about Philly World, Rough House, and the impact of Lady B and Street Beat Power 99 has had on Philadelphia. Oh, Tell me about that. man. Man, you said Lady B. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Now, for those of y'all who are listening, who grew up in Philly, you already know this, but for everybody else, Lady B, okay, before there was like a breakfast club, you know what I'm saying, in Philly, you would get up in the morning or after school and whenever, and you'd go to Power 99. Power 99 was the station 
<laughs> for what we would call, uh, you know, urban music today. And they would break all the new songs from those local artists. We, we used to call in, even when we, as yet wasn't signed, we did drops for them. We, we, we did acapella power 99 FM with Lady B, acapella Lady B, right? And send it in and they were like, they're going to play, they played our drops. We, you know, we, we thought we were famous then because she played it, but she's basically like what D Barnes was for Pump It Up. That was Lady D. Out of, out of LA. Yeah, man. But she basically had that, that authenticity, that Roxanne Chante vibe, you know, like, I mean, she's her own woman, so I'm not taking anything away from her. I just mean that, like, you knew everything that she said was real and that she's from where you're from and that you can relate to her. And she would give artists, you know, shout outs and plugs that were local but also incorporate what was going on around that time. She was like basically the the queen guardian of the culture from, I couldn't give you the years. You'd have to look it up because for me, it seems like she never really left, even though it's been that many years, you know what I mean? Right. So, so she was, so, so she was Philly's answer to what Red Alert and what Mr. Magic was doing up in New York on BLS and Kiss. Pretty much. But in a sense, being a woman and holding it down, was even harder back then, and by herself. So I, I dare say that what she did was exponentially more difficult, but equally as respected. Oh, yeah, that, definitely that. And we mentioned Rough House, um, founded by Chris oh, yeah. Schwartz. Rough, Rough House, a label that I feel didn't, doesn't really get enough credit. And I think they had a helping hand on putting out the Fuji's Blunder from Reality album, if it serves me correctly, I think. From what I understand, there are unrecorded, I mean, unreleased masters from the Fuji's there as well, uh, over at Rough House. I could be wrong, but from rumor has it, um, as well as, uh, recordings. Do you remember Criss Cross? Of course. Just, of course. Just, who can, who cannot, who cannot forget Criss Cross? Exactly. Well, they were from Philly and, uh, they were actually, uh, signed to Rough House at the time. And, they were basic Philly's <laughs> Rough House was Philly's version of say Rowdy Records over there. Rowdy at the time in Atlanta had uh, Monica. You know what I'm saying? Like they were they were trying to uh, be like a smaller the same way that uh, let's say you had Philly International and Sigma Sound and you had Rough House. They were kind of like the the urban uh, answer. But the thing is, again, I just from my personal opinion. I hope things have changed, but during that time, again, Philly was the place that you come from, not go to. And people were trying to change that. We're still trying to change that. Like, to me, Philly has got such a great vibe, but when it comes to the music industry, because there's not a really, um, since there's, there's been a vacuum left by the likes of Gamble and Huff, uh, that can't be filled by inexperienced people. So unless you're going to do, like, there's, there's there are artists who are like in different genres of hip hop who are funded by drug money. As that's not a new thing. But unless you're gonna go no that route, but unless you're gonna go that route, there's not a Motown anymore. There's not a Philly International anymore. And Rough House was potentially, like you said, uh they had the potential to be that outlet. And I didn't work for them or with them directly enough to really speak on why it didn't succeed. But in general there's been this quote-unquote curse on Philadelphia, and I think a lot of it has to do with the crabs in a barrel mentality. When if you ain't 
you know, no offense to anybody who worked at Rough House because I'm sure they tried their best and I would love to hear their side of the story. But in general, a lot of these Philly companies failed because of that crabs in a barrel mentality where like if you ain't never been nowhere, you can't take somebody somewhere that you've never been. So you kind of need to reach out and work with people outside of your sphere of influence. And a lot of people aren't willing to share the pie. Um, people get greedy. And then if you're from where I'm from, the minute something don't look right and you're doing that double talk, we fighting. Right. So Which is it's the- difficult to keep the artists in line and keep the business people in line when, when everybody is from the street. Right. Right, which is the one good thing that I always appreciated about Atlanta. To me, the Atlanta music scene was like a buffet table. Everybody sitting down at the table, L.A., Babyface, TLC, Organized Noise, Dallas, Monica. So, hey, I got this. Let me pass it to you, and we can share. Well, you know, I love that because we, we had a lot of fun on Peachtree. Even though we recorded the albums in L.A., we would come out to Peachtree Road, and they, there was an office full of face, and then we'd go to Hitco and we used to kick it with uh, Pink. Shout out to Alicia Moore. Uh, who's another, uh, I'll say Pennsylvania, Philadelphia native. She claims Philadelphia, but it's more like Philadelphia County, but whatever. She's, you know, she's from, she's from my neck of the woods. And that being said, um, we used to kick it a lot. And the thing about Atlanta is, yes, Atlanta has a specific flavor, but if you don't like, say, cinnamon, it's not for you. If you don't like the flavor, you don't. There is nothing else on the menu. So if you don't understand, say, Goody Mob or Society of Soul or Dallas Austin, uh, TLC, Tony Braxton, you know, like there's a lot of artists that created the Atlanta sound, and it's very distinct and unique. So the thing is, with As Yet, I think that nobody would have associated us with the Atlanta sound. So as much as we loved it, we never quite fit in there. Atlanta never claimed us, even though our parent company and LaFace was founded in Atlanta. We never, we never got paid from Atlanta. We're like we performed there a lot. Matter of fact, we, the fight broke out when we performed at Atlanta Hawks game. They, the fight broke out. We were performing with Monica and Brandy. Oh man! And the fight broke out in the crowd, <laughs> in the audience. They were pulling shirts over each other's heads and fist fighting. Oh man. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Now, since we're on the subject of Atlanta, you got to tell me the story of what you told me about about Pink, about how she got to deal with the face. Okay. So Alicia Moore, a.k.a. Pink. Alicia Moore was in a group called Choice, and there was a girl group. If I remember correctly, there were three of them. And this was around the time, by the way, when Fergie was in a group called Wild Orchid. That's a whole other conversation. They were signed to RCA. Yeah, oh, so he knows what's up. So I'm saying I know I called the right dude. So basically, uh, Choice was our label mates. And because LaFace only put out a couple acts a year, they would hold this event. They flew all their artists out to the Bahamas. Now, this is awesome. They flew, it was as yet, a few good men, Tony Braxton, TLC, Choice, um, Tony Rich, Donnell Jones, Usher, I'm probably leaving people out, but, oh, uh, Goody Mob, you name it, anybody, Society of Soul, uh, Outcast. Well, uh, yeah, Outcast was, um, yeah, that's right, they were still Outcast. It was before uh, Big Boy and uh, Andre went and did their Love Below speaker box album. Okay, yeah, you're right, you're right. So they, they were there, right? All of us 
we're kicking it. I'm talking like almost every, all the artists, including myself, we all smoked weed together, just kicking it and talking, right? And the talk amongst the label, all the artists were like, hey, man, you know that this is not a party. This is uh, an audition. Yeah, we're all signed right now, but they can only put out one or two artists next year. So it's a competition. And somebody's on the chopping block. The, the, the word got out, <laughs> right? So basically, when Choice performed, Choice was the group that Alicia Moore, a.k.a. Pink, was singing in. Now, the girls performed. I was there. I watched them. But when it came time for Pink to do her verse, she bursted out and jumped on top of the monitor and was, like, going ball to the wall. Just She stood out as far as her level of extrovertedness and her forward, uh, aggressive performance. I never got the impression from talking to her that she wanted to leave the group. However, the label decided at that point she's the only one worth keeping. Now, I don't know who these other two girls are, and it's probably unfair to them that they weren't kept because it's not my decision. However, when that first record came out, There You Go, with Pink, she fought, fought tooth and nail to write her own music. This, you know, like from our earlier conversation when we are talking about how um, the labels want you to just uh, kind of fall in line and use their people. Mm-hmm. She was one of the few that fought for her own direction. And the thing is, I remember having this conversation with her where she's like, look, you got to tell these people, if this is what you want to do, you just tell them. And I'm like, maybe you can get away with that. <laughs> but we couldn't because when you're in a group, you have to have a united front and, and you got to be ready to walk away. When you're a girl, mm-hmm. you can talk to dudes a certain way and they think it's cute. But if right. I talk to you that same way, it ain't cute. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right, 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 right. When a woman right. stands up for herself and she gets in your face, it gives you you have more respect for her for being a strong woman. But when a dude gets up in your face, oh, I'm punching you in your face. <laughs> right, right. Which makes what Pink has done since she left the face and hooked up with Linda Perry from Four Non Blondes and rebranded yeah. herself as a rock pop outfit a whole ton of respect. Now, being down in Atlanta, did you ever cross paths with JD, So So Death, Little John, and anybody that was in the So So Death camp? Okay. I, okay. JD, yes. Uh, before and during Janet Jackson and the brat. Um, so, so this, okay. Um, I don't have anything against them per se, but I think that because they weren't, uh, directly affiliated with, uh, Hitco, which was, uh, LaFace's in-house writing team, they're the ones that had, uh, oh, sh- shout out by the way to, uh, KP, big, KP, Kawan Prather. Um, uh, that's the dude, basically, he was the lead A&R slash, uh, head creative over there, uh, at the face in Atlanta. So he was one of the cats that was in our corner from the beginning. So I just wanted to give him a shout out. Cause, um, they were trying to get us with a lot of hit co-writers. And the thing is, I don't have any problems with nobody at this point, but you know, when you're young, you're trying to prove yourself. You're trying to do everything. And it's like, for whatever reason, because we were babyface as artists and we're signed to the West Coast, we could never really collaborate the way we wanted to with the Atlanta artists because they were, they didn't understand. Um, okay, let's just say we didn't understand each other, but I will say that they didn't know what to do with us because 
you and I both know the Atlanta sound. None of it that I know of is known for having five-part harmonies. There may be a sound somewhere, but it's not something you think of first. So uh-uh. there's no offense to them, but we just didn't fit in being from Philly and then going to California and working with Babyface and then coming to Atlanta. It was just like maybe geographically the sound didn't fit because Atlanta sound to me was a derivative of what was going on further south in Florida with Luke and Miami bass. Yes, 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 yes. You hit the nail on the head. And that's the thing. It's no disrespect whatsoever. It's just certain things just don't go together. It's like, you know, you have to kind of commit to a cream sauce or a tomato sauce. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm. you just you just can't put, um, I mean, I'm going to say this, but maybe you'll try it. Um, cinnamon and fried chicken? Maybe you like it, but I don't think of that first. <laughs> that's not the right. first thing I think of putting on my fried chicken is no cinnamon. So right. maybe it'll taste good. But the point is nobody ever gave us, like, that kind of attention in Atlanta because they were like, oh, y'all not from this vibe right here, so y'all don't understand what we're doing, and the feeling is mutual, so we just hung out and right. had more fun. Right. So we did the same so choice. They picked Pink. She came out. She left. Uh, we got picked. We, we Few Good Men, shout out to Few Good Men, um, you know, we competed for our slot as the group. It was either us or Few Good Men, and history will show that uh, – they put our music out. Two Good Men did have a song or two out, but they didn't get the love that we got. We thought we weren't getting love until we heard how they got treated. So, shout out to Two Good Men. Yeah, yeah, because I, I feel, I, feel I, I just mean they didn't get the treatment. Yeah, because I feel like their Let's Take a Dip album, which Let's Take a Dip was originally done by Dallas Austin's short lived group, Highland Place Monsters. And a big yes. shout out goes to Joy Cinderella Irby from Climax. She was the one that brought Dallas Austin into the game, helped him do I'll Always Love You and My Music Off a of Troops Attitude album, yes. which also led to her discovering Sammy and Lloyd. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, great contributions to the era, for sure. For sure. Those are well deserved shout outs. Well, definitely well deserved. And, um, you mentioned 112 earlier. Did you cross paths with any of the hitmen from um, Bad Boy like D-Dot, Harv Pierre, Tony Dofat, Ron Amin Ra, Lawrence, Mario Winans, a lot of those guys, Jack Knight? Okay, Mario Winans, yes. And Harvey, okay, you ever heard of Harvey Mason? Harvey yeah, from the underdogs. Yeah, we, we work with them. We work with, uh, shout out to Tim and Bob. Are you hip to Tim and Bob? Uh, you have to, uh, uh, I mentioned Warren Campbell, but what about, uh, Mike City? Um, mm-hmm. yeah, Mike City is another tight cat. Um, we worked with, uh, Eric Dawkins. We worked with, uh, oh man, so many artists, so many people. Did you, you work, uh, did you, did you work with, um, Keith Crouch who did work on Brandy's yes. debut album? Keith Crouch and Kenneth Crouch. Both of them, they're both talented bad cats right there. And Brandy, I, I gotta tell you Brandy's story. All right, real quick. Uh, Brandy, if you're listening, you know, uh, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, rumor has it, the word around town, this is back in the day. When I say back in the day, around the same time that Brandy was uh, dating uh, Wanye and she went to the prom with Kobe. Rest in peace, Kobe. Yes, rest in power. When, uh, around that time, there was a... a a call put out to me from my momager. We call it momager because she was Babyface's mother-in-law. She was talking to Sonia Norwood. And the idea was floated to me 
about possibly dating or being and or being seen with Brandy romantically linked in Hollywood terms. And the thing was, right, she's beautiful and talented. And there's no reason why I would say no. But because of where I was and the space that I was in mentally, my first response was, I ain't doing no Hollywood shit. Like, I don't even know her like that. How am I going to say yes to being romantically involved with somebody I'm not even, like, like friends with like that? Like, I see her everywhere and she's cool, but I wasn't thirsty. Like, like I just wasn't built like that to be like, oh, I'm going to be with somebody for the clout. You know what I'm saying? But it was clear uh-huh. to me. Looking back on it, right? I mean, she's beautiful. I'm sure things would have worked out, and she's a great person, and I shouldn't have, I should have at least sat down and met with her, right? But, again, just the whole premise behind using something to me that's sacred, like a relationship, a personal relationship, is a sacred thing. It's not something that you just do for publicity. <laughs> so, right. But at the time, like, and, and I was like, wait, she just, she just was at the prom with Kobe, and she was dating Juan Ye. You know, looking back on it, I mean, it's really, like, at this point, would it really have made a difference? I don't know. I mean, I, do I I don't have any regrets. It's just I feel like it's not her fault. Like, if she was genuinely interested in me at the time and the management right. might have spun it to make it seem like a publicity stunt, I don't know. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I still have, you know, I still have feelings for her as a human being, as a talented, beautiful woman. You know, right. So that's about it. Like, right. I don't know her well enough right. to, to make any life decisions. <laughs> right, right, right. You mentioned earlier, um, Barrio Boys, and I feel that they were completely underrated. The How We Roll album, it should have came out, I think, ninety seven, ninety eight, right around when Ricky Martin and Enrique was yeah. breaking here in the U.S. And also, too, they yeah. were signed to the wrong label. They were signed to the SBK which was known for Vanilla Ice and um, Riff was signed onto uh, SBK Records. For those of you that don't know Riff, look at the movie Lean On Me, bathroom scene. Yeah. That's all you need to know. Right. Speaking of Lean On Me, Riff in power, Bill Withers once again, but twice he got a reference today. <laughs> in a yeah. roundabout way. But yeah. Right. And the thing is with, with Barrio Boys, right? I mean, I love them because of what they represent for the culture and just the idea of blending and merging. And I think in their minds, they went to the right label because they were able to make an artist who wasn't supposed to succeed, quote unquote, racially, succeed, which was Vanilla Ice. As much as we might revile him. <laughs> uh, yeah, Vanilla Ice was dope. I mean, da- dancing and hooked on to the extreme, dope record. But I just think the backlash of him coming yeah. after Hammer and then with new kids exploding, something like, oh, you're just taking black culture and just whitewashing it, making it pop. Yeah, and I, I agree with all of that. But the point I'm trying to make is when you are trying to break into a market that you're unfamiliar with, I can imagine what how the label pitched themselves. They said, look, if we can make this guy Vanilla Ice a success, um, we, imagine what we can do for you. That's probably how they pitched it to where they they signed with the wrong label because it seemed like a good idea at the time. That's all I was trying to say. I'm, not, I'm in no right. way ever going to defend Vanilla Ice. I don't know him well enough. <laughs> right to defend him, but I'm just saying, like, uh, you know, I can see how they might have thought, well, if they can make him blow up, then maybe they can help me out. Right, so, right, because yeah, because I also mentioned to you earlier off air um, about Nestor Velasquez. He was signed to Uptown back in the early '90s. Had a single personality. Um, he went, go to YouTube to check out my interview with him. Um, he was saying that that song took off. 
but it was right around during the fourth quarter of the year when the labels would break for the holidays. And once they came back at the top of the year, there was really nobody to push the record. And then also he was originally supposed to have been a member of the Barrio Boys, according to, once again, my interview with Joe Jacket. And Nesto confirmed that he was originally supposed to have been in Barrio Boys. Yeah. That, the thing is, the Barrio Boys, they had a few different deals. Well, from what I understand, uh, you know, they had issues with certain members and replacement members. And that's how we got my Mike Bermudez, Miguel Bermudez, he's uh, in, in Viva Mas, which is the group that I'm in now. And they brought him in to replace somebody. And, you know, the consummate, you know, Miguel's a consummate professional. He actually, to me, he sounds like a Puerto Rican Teddy Pendergrass, man. Like he got that hazy, heavy, like, you know, type soulful voice. And um, mm-hmm. the thing was, I don't think the market, this kind of goes to what we spoke about earlier, the labels don't know how to market you unless you fit into a certain slot. So what they'll do is they'll say, oh, you're Puerto Rican? Uh, What's the most popular style of Puerto Rican music? Okay, you're doing that. As opposed to, like, how can you push the boundaries of what it means to be Puerto Rican? What do you guys like? Let's incorporate that and hire some new people. The same way that, like, other artists do where they'll take you to the next level by pairing you up with the right producer, like a Rick Rubin or like a Timberland or like a Babyface. Well, like you bring your style to them and they take it to the next level. But with certain types of artists, they say, oh, well, we're going to pigeonhole you because that's the only way we know how to make our money. So regardless of what label that Barrio Boys went to, it would really depend on how much creative input and freedom they have uh, to see whether or not the music would stand the test of time. To go further right. than just being like part of that five year trend or whatever. Right. I mean, and same way, yeah, because same way about Bobby Ross Avila when he was an artist. I mean, La La Love and My Love, the work he did on the My Destiny album with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. I felt like uh-huh. Eddie would have gotten a stranglehold of, okay, this demographic is going to be big. Let's take the Latin flavor and put the R&B with it. He would have been huge. And I felt C Note. The boy group that was on Transcon, they released a different kind of love. Yeah. Wait till I get home, covered our light. I thought they would have been the next group out of that camp to really blow. <laughs> you want to hear something deep? Now you're talking about being on the wrong label. Transcontinental. <laughs> you know oh, yeah, and I interviewed say. Donna Wright, and this was before everything unraveled yeah. with Lou and everything like that. So, yeah, yeah I know the story say. all too well. Yeah, so those of you who don't know the story, I'm not going to retell it here. I'm just going to say that Transcontinental succeeded as much because of and in spite of their imprisoned and recently deceased CEO. So I'm just going to leave yeah. it at that. Like something, yeah, some things need no explaining. Yeah, go watch the boy band con. It was on Lance's documentary. Had him, yeah. some of the Instinct and Bastry guys, Donna, right? Yeah. And she talks about they talk about. And everything, but then another group who I felt they were urban, and then once new label heads switched, they went pop. But I felt they found their sweet spot as an urban group, ninety eight degrees. Go online, check out my yeah. interview with Jeff Timmons, because they pretty much were. Wow. They, yeah, because they pretty much were patterning their first album after groups like Boyz II Men, Shy, You Guys. I mean, straight R and B. Well, it's, it's funny because I never really, they never really got my attention until they crossed over, but only because I guess at that point we were too busy. Well, look, we were too busy not taking any of our competition that serious 
to think of to think of them as competition. You know what I'm saying? Because it was mm-hmm. a smaller right. group and they were doing like they had a niche. I agree with you, but I never really. Yeah. It's almost like if imagine if Pink had stayed urban and didn't cross over, maybe she right. would have still been doing urban now. Maybe a 98 degrees would still be doing urban now. But to think as his as history has dictated. Can you imagine 98 Degrees being more urban than Justin Timberlake? Justin Timberlake, you would never right. think of in the beginning from Disney going straight up urban, even though there are right. of him doing like Jamaican-ish sort of weird stuff. If you look at some of these videos of him back in the day, there's a video of him with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio singing. Uh, some, oh, wow. uh, yeah, I'm gonna find a clip and send it to you, but there's a clip of them doing some kind of Rastafarian remake on. Disney Channel. I was like, this has got to be a joke. Oh yeah, but 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 once again, you got to think about where Justin is from. Justin's from Memphis, stacks. He's like well yeah. rooted in like R and B, so it's in his blood. True, true, and you can't hate on that. You know what I'm saying? Well, oh no, can, oh, oh no. <laughs> right, and then we also mentioned earlier how if JC would have gone the Robert Thicke route, I felt he would have been bigger as a solo artist to me. I think so too because he had the chops, he had the instrument, but just not the songs. But and the industry was so hard on him, unfairly, if you ask me. Uh, for somebody who's coming from such a successful situation, you don't give mm-hmm. up after one single that was on a soundtrack. You take that right. and you work with it because you've got pre-existing fans. Uh, nothing else to do if the group has already moved on at that point, mm-hmm. and. If anything, the internet teaches is that controversy sells and that, uh, it's better to have engagement and this was, it's better to be vehemently disliked than to not be known of at all. So if somebody's right. hating on you, but they're commenting and you're getting all this engagement, then guess what? Hollywood loves a good comeback. The world loves mm-hmm. a good comeback. Like they will, mm-hmm. if you do something right, they'll uncancel you as long as you're not like, racist or like doing something ridiculous like child molestation or something weird you right. can pretty much come back right. from anything so they should have right. given another chance I think they should have at least put out a ballad after that failed up tempo mm-hmm. or remix or something make people mm-hmm. the same way they do with, with new artists that don't have a following invest mm-hmm. make them like you right? or you can go right. and find 10 new artists for the same money and then hopefully one of them will stick and you basically destroy right. everybody else's life. The other nine artists and their families got stars. <laughs> right, right. And we were speaking about um, 3T earlier. Now, I'm still puzzled as to why they didn't have the same success overseas in Europe and America. I mean, you're from the family that's shaped our lives in pop culture, the Jacksons. So why do you think 3T didn't really take off here in America? Ooh. I have really strong feelings about this, and we never discussed this before, but for me, right, just Mm. personally, and I I don't represent the general public. These are not the opinions of the radio station, but I think the the bar is set way too high. If you come from that family and you're the younger generation, if you're not as good, if not better, the Jackson 5 played instruments. They had a TV show, cartoons. They not only uh, produced uh, group records, but they had more than one solo artist who was successful. They were musicians. But when you, personally, when I saw 3T, I was like, mm, there's no standout person. They sound timid. And the harmony... It's nice, like it doesn't, they don't suck, like I'm not saying they're not talented, but 
there was nothing about them that added to the legacy of what the Jacksons were about. Like, if they had come out doing a totally different style than the Jacksons, or one of them had a bass voice, and it was like, whoa, that's not something we expect from the Jacksons, or they could really dance their asses off and sounded half as good, like B2K. No offense, but B2K, you know, is not the Jackson 5, but they could dance their asses off, and they had their own thing. There was nothing new being brought to the table, in my opinion, and I'm sorry, 3T, please don't blackball me. I love you guys. Um, you, you can tell me how much I suck in person, you know, and how, how whack I am as an artist and a producer. And I'm not saying that they're whack. I'm just saying that from for me, I wasn't. I was expecting more, because when you grow up in a legacy that's already been established, you got to add. You, you got to add something that hasn't already been there. And honestly, ask yourself this, public, listening public, ask yourself: If Three T never came out, what would you miss? That's there. You go. I'm sorry. Somebody had to get thrown under the bus tonight. You can delete this later. But that's <laughs> right, because you know, public, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I think the public yeah. might have been a little underwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I'm a I'm a huge fan of 3T. I love the Brotherhood album, um, Sexual Attention, which was co-written by um, Robin Thicke, and also felt that another group from over over in the UK that was huge that should have blown up more in the US was Five. They had moderate success here in the states, but they just didn't really have that breakout single that would have um bust them over big time in America. And that was created by Mr. Simon Cowell in response to Missing Out on the Spice Girls, which was created by Mr. Simon Fuller. Exactly. And you bring up a point that I probably should have mentioned earlier, that sometimes, most of the time, the artist's talent exceeds the songs they get, kind of like what we talked about with uh, JC. And with 3T, I like the material, and I'm not saying that they're bad. It's just unfair that they're in such a huge shadow with that family that unless you're doing something so extremely different or adding a new dimension, people are going to always look at you as, you know, a version, a three-part version of the Jackson 5 that don't play instruments. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, people are going to unfairly pigeonhole you. You know what I'm saying? That's why I said said, this is not the radio station thing. But going back to your point about, um, you know, five, I'm a sucker for five-part harmony. You don't call yourself five unless at least some point in the group you're going to put five parts. And I don't mean two octaves and a three part. I mean five individual notes in a chord. To me, that just makes sense. It's like calling yourself pick six, but you're only singing three part harmony and two basses and two top notes or some weird, you know what I mean? Like, it's just not right. So I, I don't know. Like, I'm biased because of my musical background. But sometimes I think that the listening public is wiser than we give them credit for, and people try to dumb the music down when they don't need to. They need to just play it one extra time. <laughs> you know, like they used to tell, this is completely off the cuff, they used to tell people, um, you know, songs are supposed to be three minutes and 30 seconds, you know. Queen released a song called Bohemian Rhapsody that is a classic. It's like seven minutes mm-hmm. long. Radio didn't want to play it. You know, I'm sure by now people have seen the movie, and some of it is fairly accurate. But what people don't tell you is that the first label that turned them down eventually signed them, like, after they got turned down by everybody else because they just kept plugging away. You know, like, they don't they don't tell you the struggle. And the thing is, people are capable of enjoying any style of music if it's presented in the right way. If you're busy watching TV and I unplug it during your favorite show and say, listen to this, you're not going to want to listen to it. If you're surfing on YouTube and you, you're looking for a Jay-Z song and there's a commercial 
for boys to men. You're like, I didn't come here for that. I'm going to click past it. It's about when you reach people. So I think a lot of these great, talented actors, even 3T, if 3T had come out not during the group time, when people were missing groups, people would have really appreciated what they had to offer. People would say, oh, wow, you know what? If they would have come out after Michael passed and after all the smoke blew, you know, once all the smoke cleared, I think mm-hmm. they would have gotten the attention they deserved as well as these groups like, you know, from Europe and five. It's, it's all about the timing. Like, can you imagine right. if Adele came out right after, uh, uh, what do you call it, rehab? But, you know what I'm saying? Can you imagine? Kind of follow uh-huh. up. It would just be overload. It would be overload. Right. Right. It's all about. Case singing artists. And, and jo- imagine Josh Stone coming out at the same time as Adele. It would just be, like, oh, kind of weird. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. D- Duffy, too. Because I thought Duffy, yeah, Duffy. Was, was was really okay. going to blow here. But, but like you said, Adele just came out and just, whoo out the water, and then when I listen to Freddie Mercury's voice, I'm like, if he would have toned, like, the Broadway style of his voice, mm-hmm. he could have did the whole George Michael Faith album. Right. To me. Right. And Adam Lambert can sing both of their albums. Yeah. It's yeah. funny, I used to sing George Michael. As a matter of fact, when I came back to Philly, right, there's this little mm-hmm. little karaoke spot. I say little, but it's like three stories. called Yakitori Boys downtown. Shout out to Yakitori Boys. Right? They got like a karaoke upstairs with like a big stage and like a, a huge screen and an open bar. And you just go and chill. And I had just been through a bitter divorce and I'm looking through the song list. And at the last minute, I changed my selection. I said, I want to sing George Michael Kissing a Fool. Man, the room got so quiet and I had to turn and face the audience, even though I was just chilling by the bar because it was that intense. Like his song have so much impact on people that no matter when you put it on, it, you know, stops people in a trap. Right. To me, that's what music is all about. Like, it takes you to a place that you could not otherwise reach. Right. Anyway, I'm sorry, right, because... went off on another pencil. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Because Kissing the Fool, one of my favorite cuts off of Faith, it has that jazzy Michael Blue Blay sound. And like I said it earlier, it was the yeah. first album by a white artist to go number one on R&B. I mean, he was getting airplay yeah. on R&B radio alongside Luther, Michael Jackson, Anita Baker, or whatever big right. artist and of the day. The, he, didn't, he didn't take the Vanilla Ice route. He didn't, you know, he didn't change his swag. He's wearing short shorts. <laughs> Talking about FaceTime. Right. FaceTime. <laughs> right, right, and then I'm gonna give you. Right, and, and since we're on the subject of um, Blue Eyed Soul, and um, this, this group was a label mate of his on Columbia. I'm gonna give give you and the listening public a little bit of backstory about New Kids on the Block and Please Don't Go Girl. All right, so there was two versions of the Please Don't Go Girl video. One of them, they were in an auditorium, and it was low budget. So what ended up happening with that was when I interviewed Danny Wood, go to YouTube.com, check that out. Um, he said that Maurice Starr, go to YouTube, check that out, um, pay for it out of pocket. And they shot that video specifically for BET because New Kids on the Block at that time was being marketed as an R&B group. And what happened was a pop station out of Florida started playing it. I guess the person must have saw the video on BET. And that's how the song started to gain some pop traction. Then once MTV 
got a hold of these guys once all the top 40 stations say, hey, you got to hit here to Columbia and Donnie Einer and uh, Larkin Arnold, who is legendary in the music business as far as for urban music. And they shot the better version of Please Don't Go Girl, which was the one at Coney Island. Ah, interestingly enough, right, from a musical perspective, uh, Please Don't Go Girl is the same template as Is This the End. Run them if you ran them back to back. Please don't go girl. Is yeah. Are you my yep. friend? It's the same song. And I remember uh you were talking about Maurice Starr. He went on he had to go on Arsenio Hall, right? You remember this? When they interviewed him and said, There's a rumor going around that your vocals are actually on this record and that you are a master imitator of other mm-hmm. artists. And he went on there and was singing all these different people. Man, look that up. It blows your mind. A lot of people give well, Maurice Starr the credit for being the Sven Gowdy who filled in the gaps uh, on a lot of these groups. And the thing is, I believe it to a certain extent because the same thing happened even with Boys to Men. Boys to Men, they, yes, they sang all their vocals on Motown Story and they're on every record they ever sang. They're not Millie Vanilli. But when you listen to that Boys to Men Christmas album, Brian Knight, he told me himself that as yet was the only group he ever wrote for that he didn't sing backgrounds on the record. Including wow. Boys and Men. So boy, wow. when you listen to the reason why the Boys and Men Christmas album, one of the reasons why it sounds so great is because Boys and Men delivered great performances. Another reason why it sounds so great is because Brian McKnight layered harmony behind them to thicken it up and give it the color notes and the thickness that you can't get from just three-part harmony plus a bass. That being said, right. Maurice Starr was a pioneer of that as well. So he was this also a guy named Tony Thompson. Do you remember High Five? Oh, 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 oh. I have a real real good real good friend of mine. Shout out to my girl Angela. Um that that knew Tony very well and um get and and so so I know of High Five. Tony, underrated singer, that sensational album. Uh. Man sweat. I mean, you had Devontae, I'll be sure. I mean, Diddy was on that. If, if I, I, I personally feel had Tony, you know, got himself straight, Tony should have been bigger as a solo artist. Well, here's a story that, here's a story that we didn't, I didn't get to share with you. That as yet has a connection to High Five. There's a cat from Philly named Damon Keith Miley. Now, no, I'm sorry, that Damon Miley, Damon Keith Wins is a whole other cat. Damon Miley, David Miley used to sing the demos for all of High Five songs. He was actually the cat. He had that Tony Thompson voice, but a more, I'll say, wider range, a more theatrical version. He just didn't have that look that they were looking for, and he's a little bit older. But he's a great songwriter, great producer, and unfortunately, he never got his shine. But he would go back and forth to New York. And the way that, as yet, Untitled got to perform at the Apollo is because he lives in Harlem. David Dan Miley, he lives in Harlem in this place that is falling apart to where, like, you know your place is falling apart when only one person can get on the staircase at a time so it don't fall. It was a condemned building. Oh, wow. So we would stay in there just long enough so that we can perform as amateurs at the Apollo. And he would, this guy, Damon Keith, I'm sorry, Damon Miley. There's another cat, by the way. I keep saying his name because there's a cat that's like the Teddy Pendergrass of Philadelphia named Damon Keith Williams who performed at all these concerts. And, like, I don't know why he didn't blow up. But the point that I'm trying to make is that if you listen to uh, Never Should Have Let You Go by High Five, the background and the harmony were filled in by Damon Miley. And there's a cat uh, from as yet 
named Wow, Ladon, aka Donald Smith, Ladon Bishop, who used to sing demos for Joe. So if you have ever heard the song by As Yet called Every Woman, that was uh, one of the lead vocalists who replaced Mark was named Ladon Bishop, aka Donald Smith, and he turned out to be a teacher at my daughter's school. That's how the world turns around. He was one of the most beloved teachers at my daughter's private school. Um, but to make a long story short, um, you never know uh, how many people sacrifice their talent so that someone else can get all the glory, and it's unfortunate. Right. I mean, right. It's, and it's a beautiful I, thing, but it's unfortunate. Right. And another group that I felt they were, for me, these guys were my number two group right behind New Edition. Them boys out of Pasadena, California, Troop. Oh, man. Are you kidding me? Troop is, like, one of my all-time favorites uh, to this day. Shout out to Stephen Russell. You know, shout out to the whole group. And the thing is, Troop was right at that, that threshold where they were crossover, but they weren't pop in the bubblegum sense. They were R&B, but they weren't urban in that they, in that guttural sense, like you know what I'm saying, but they had just to me a natural balance in their music that was not contrived. And the artists, the artist that is true, claimed responsibility for their creative direction, which is something I always admire about them and any group that's trying to make it or any artist when when you contribute and participate and direct your vision, it's not easy to do at any era. It's, it's difficult because you're always being doubted. There's always someone else who's paying the money who thinks everything should go their way. There's always something. You know what I mean? It's just it's just the way it is. Right, right, right. Definitely a big shout-out to Alan, Steve, and uh, yeah. John John, who I had to check pleasure of interviewing on three separate occasions definitely alan because alan was my first ever interview so um definitely big shouts to troop and i feel that for me personally i think new edition set a high bar as far as yeah. groups go they are still the gold standard of for any group like hey you want to get to this level this is who you look up to because all six of them had solo success outside of the group can break off and come back together at any time you know, and, uh, tell oh, me what other group has, has done that. I'm, I'm gonna, okay. No other group. Uh, all right, I'll put it like this, right? There are multiple metrics one can look to mm. to define success. And by any measure, new additions are legends. On the flip side, or I'll say another, um, another facet of this jewel of R&B, the, the metric that I like to use is who can sing each other's material. I'll give an example, right? People say, oh, well, you know, Ashanti sold more records than Kim Burrell. But would you rather hear Ashanti sing Kim Burrell songs or Kim Burrell sing Ashanti songs? Would you rather hear Mariah Carey sing, sing Kim Cole songs or Kim Cole sing Mariah? Like the when you flip them around? It's like, it's a whole other metric. I'm not saying it's the only one, but just imagine. It's a fun game to play. Imagine, for instance, right, 
Boys to Men singing As Yet songs, As Yet singing Boys to Men songs. Imagine troops singing New Edition songs, New Edition singing troops songs. Like, this can go on. This is a game you could play all day. And it kind of equals out in a different way. And you can't really do it with hip-hop artists because it's very rare that hip-hop artists cover a full song from another hip-hop artist. It would just be, like, weird because, you know, it's just not in the culture. I'm not saying it's impossible because I've seen – there was actually a Rapper's Delight remix um, that, that I thought was really cool. You know, it was, like, redone by a bunch of different artists, and it was dope. But the, the, right. the thing I'm trying to say is that after you strip away the, the successes because I'm aware of the politics, and it's a different kind of genius to be able to pull it off, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the musical – merits as a standalone thing. For instance, right, Luther Vandross, God rest his soul, versus R. Kelly, <laughs> right? I mean, R. Kelly versus Charlie Wilson. Hey, R. Kelly may have sold more records than Charlie Wilson, but Charlie Wilson will sing circles around R. Kelly uh, in his prison cell. So it just depends on what metric you're using, and the the, the comparisons can go on indefinitely. Yeah, definitely. That. Oh, another singer you would mention R&B singers, Lilo Thomas, underrated male R&B singer signed to the same management company with Freddie Jackson, Melba Moore, Paul Lawrence over at Hush. Oh man, Hush. That's, man, I was man. You taking me back with Hush? And uh, okay. Um, well, I say shout out to Lilo Thomas. That's one of those things, man. Where I don't, I don't really know what you know what it is that people are doing or not doing and sometimes you can do everything right and it's just right. not supposed to be for you at that moment and it really it's unfortunate because right. to me one of the biggest tragedies is watching people who are way more talented than i'll ever be not get the shine they deserve oh, i just want to pull my hair out and the thing is there's enough people in the world <laughs> it's, not, it's not like that i mean i want to see everybody win like this Right. I just do. Um, when I say I want to see everybody win, I don't mean I want to see like rapists and child molesters and criminals like win. But mm-hmm. I'm just saying that like there is a lot of unappreciated talent, and I've never met Lilo personally enough. You know, I shake his hand when I see him in the street. He ain't, he ain't never done nothing to me. You know, so I have nothing bad to say about him. It's unfortunate, like that. Um, you know, it's how this game is. Right. The worst part and for me is. is when you do succeed, it cripples you. How about that? Because they'll say, oh, well, um, you know, when's the next? They still ask me when the next As Yet record's coming out. I'm like, you know, I ain't been in a group in like seven years, right? But, like, I could tell, but I could tell you when it's coming out, but I'm not right. in a group no more. Right. Right. So looking back on As Yet, do you guys feel, do you feel that the group has gotten this just do amongst the many army groups that came out in the ni- in the 90s and then also talk about your fan base overseas as we discussed previously i believe over in malaysia okay now i honestly have to say that i i think that as yet got it's just do amongst those who know meaning people who judge or critique our music for music's sake who weren't overwhelmed by the hype and did not strictly look at record sales, but listened to the sound of the record for what it was, appreciate it fully. Those are the people who showed up. And when you mentioned overseas, I feel like the, there's a reason why um, many groups, not just 
as yet were appreciated overseas because they look to the United States to set the tone musically for whatever reason. The same way that we might look to China for technology or look, I don't know, I, when, I, when I think of like soulful music, I'm going to listen to gospel. I'm not going to, you know, no offense to any other style of music, but it's not like I'm going to go to, uh, you know, Brazil to uh, to hear reggaeton. You know, they've got their own samba. I don't, you know what I'm saying? That being said, um, I think we we should, I say woulda, shoulda, coulda, it's just a weird place to exist because I'm like personally not of that belief. I think everything is as it should have been because if it had been any different, we would be having a different conversation. But that being said, I appreciate everybody who loved what we did. I think the group could have went further. Um, what it should have could have. Yes, we could have gone further. And yes, some of the records that we recorded that weren't released were just as good and better than the ones that got released. As far as when I say better, I mean musically, sonically, spiritually, like where we were at the time, and like how certain artists get to develop over time. When you've got two and three hundred songs under your belt, you're a different artist than when you're on your first album. You just are. Period. But that being said, I'm at a I'm at a, a, a place in my life personally where everything I do I have to answer to my kids and my future grandkids because I realize how temporary all of this is and how fragile life is and how much more there is to life than just being famous and money. Um, although those things are are great, they can be a byproduct of your success or a measure of your success, or they can be um, you know the uh they can be a barrier to happiness it's however you look at things so for me i want to contribute to the world or not do it at all it's either going to be something great that puts a smile on one extra person's face i'm not going to get in the studio thinking man uh how many views is this going to get or who's going to what market are we aiming for and all that now you know what i'll leave that to the the marketers I just right. want to get in and do and create and be, be authentic and uh, reflect the times uh, and be socially responsible uh, and uplift and enlighten and, and provide opportunities when possible. Right. And do you have anything else that you want to say before before we close out the interview? Yes, sir. Today is a very auspicious day. Today marks both the anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King and the beloved Dr. Maya Angelou. I have a single that I produced uh, with Smooch Music, which is available today. By the time you listen to this, it will have been out since April 4th. It is a single called Human Family, written and performed by the legendary Dr. Maya Angelou, God rest her soul, produced by yours truly, available on all platforms. Human Family 2020, Dr. Maya Angelou. All right. And now give out your social media handles. Sean Kurt Rivera on Instagram. That's S-H-A-W-N-K-U-R-T. R-I-V-E-R-A on Instagram. And Sean Rivera, there's only one of me that looks like me, the same guy who drank your wine. You can find me on Facebook. I'm out there. I'm also on Reverb Nation. You can look me up on iTunes or on YouTube. One way or another, all roads lead to me. 
All right. And this interview will be heard on Anchor, this outlet, Spotify, and other podcast outlets. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it, Mr. Sean Rivera from the 90s R&B group, Asher. Sean, thank you for doing this interview with me, my man. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>